Audio Literature presents A Separate Reality by Carlos Castaneda, read by Peter Coyote. Ten years ago, I had the fortune of meeting a Yaqui Indian from northwestern Mexico. I call him Don Juan. In Spanish, Don is an appellative used to denote respect. I made Don Juan's acquaintance under the most fortuitous circumstances. I was sitting with Bill, a friend of mine, in a bus depot in a border town in Arizona. We were very quiet. In the late afternoon, the summer heat seemed unbearable. Suddenly, he leaned over and tapped me on the shoulder. There's the man I told you about, he said in a low voice. He nodded casually toward the entrance. An old man had just walked in. What did you tell me about him, I asked. He's the Indian that knows about peyote, remember? Don Juan and I became friends, and for a year I paid him innumerable visits. I found his manner very reassuring and his sense of humor superb. But above all, I felt there was a silent consistency about his acts, a consistency which was thoroughly baffling to me. I felt a strange delight in his presence, and at the same time I experienced a strange discomfort. His mere company forced me to make a tremendous reevaluation of my models of behavior. I had been reared, perhaps like everyone else, to have a readiness to accept man as an essentially weak and fallible creature. What impressed me about Don Juan was the fact that he did not make a point of being weak and helpless, and just being around him ensured an unfavorable comparison between his way of behaving and mine. In 1961, a year after our first meeting, Don Juan disclosed to me that he had a secret knowledge of medicinal plants. He told me he was a brujo. The Spanish word brujo can be rendered in English as sorcerer, medicine man, curer. From that point on, the relation between us changed. I became his apprentice, and for the next four years he endeavored to teach me the mysteries of sorcery. I have written about that apprenticeship in the teachings of Don Juan, a Yaqui way of knowledge. Don Juan's method of teaching required an extraordinary effort on the part of the apprentice. In fact, the degree of participation and involvement needed was so strenuous that by the end of 1965 I had to withdraw from the apprenticeship. I can say now, with the perspective of the five years that have elapsed, that at that time Don Juan's teachings had begun to pose a serious threat to my idea of the world. I had begun to lose the certainty which all of us have that the reality of everyday life is something we can take for granted. At the time of my withdrawal, I was convinced that my decision was final. I did not want to see Don Juan ever again. However, in April of 1968, an early copy of my book was made available to me, and I felt compelled to show it to him. I paid him a visit. April 2nd, 1968. Don Juan looked at me for a moment and did not seem at all surprised to see me even though it had been more than two years since I last visited him. He put his hand on my shoulder and smiled gently and said that I looked different, that I was getting fat and soft. I had brought him a copy of my book. Without any preliminaries, I took it out of my briefcase and handed it to him. It's a book about you, Don Juan, I said. He took it and flipped through the pages as if they were a deck of cards. He liked the green color on the dust jacket and the height of the book. He felt the cover with his palms, turned it around a couple of times, and then handed it back to me. I felt a great surge of pride. I want you to keep it, I said. He shook his head with a silent laugh. 
I better not, he said, and then added with a broad smile, you know what we do with paper in Mexico. I laughed. I thought his touch of irony was beautiful. My visit to Don Juan started a new cycle. I had no trouble falling back again into my old pattern of enjoying his sense of drama and his humor and his patience with me. I definitely felt that I had to visit him more often. Not to see Don Juan was indeed a great loss for me. May 21st, 1968. Nothing out of the ordinary happened during my trip to see Don Juan. The temperature in the desert was over a hundred degrees and was quite uncomfortable. The heat subsided in the late afternoon, and by the time I arrived at his house in the early evening, there was a cool breeze. I was not very tired, so we sat in his room and talked. I felt comfortable and relaxed, and we talked for hours. We were talking about Oaxaca. I told Don Juan that once I had arrived in the city on a day when market was open, a day when scores of Indians from all over the area flocked to town to sell food and all kinds of trinkets. I mentioned that I was particularly interested in a man who was selling medicinal plants. He carried a wooden kit in which he kept a number of small jars with dry, shredded plants, and he stood in the middle of the street holding one jar, yelling a very peculiar sing-song. I bring here, he would say, for fleas, flies, mosquitoes, and lice, also for pigs, horses, goats, and cows. I have here for all the maladies of man, the mumps, the measles, rheumatism, and gout, I bring here for the heart, the liver, the stomach, and the loin. Come near, ladies and gentlemen. I bring here for fleas, flies, mosquitoes, and lice. I had listened to him for a long time. His format consisted of enumerating a long list of man's diseases for which he claimed to have a cure. The device he used to give rhythm to his sing-song was to pause after naming a set of four. Don Juan said that he also used to sell herbs in the market in Oaxaca when he was young. He said he still remembered his selling pitch, and he yelled it for me. He said that he and his friend Vicente used to make concoctions. Those concoctions were really good, Don Juan said. My friend Vicente used to make great extracts of plants. I told Don Juan that once during one of my trips to Mexico, I had met his friend Vicente. Don Juan seemed to be surprised and wanted to know more about it. I was driving through Durango at that time and remembered that Don Juan had once told me I should pay a visit to his friend who lived there. I looked for him and found him and talked to him for a while. Before I left, he gave me a sack with some plants and a series of instructions for replanting one of them. I stopped on my way to the town of Aguas Calientes. I made sure that there were no people around. For at least ten minutes I had been watching the road and surrounding areas. There had not been any houses in sight nor cattle grazing alongside the road. I stopped on the top of a small hill. From there I could see the road ahead and behind me. It was deserted in both directions as far into the distance as I could see. I waited for a few minutes to orient myself and to remember Don Vicente's instructions. I took one of the plants, walked into a field of cacti on the east side of the road, and planted it as Don Vicente had instructed me. I had with me a bottle of mineral water with which I intended to sprinkle the plant. I tried to open it by hitting the cap with a small iron bar I had used as a digging stick, but the bottle exploded and a glass sliver nicked my upper lip and made it bleed. I walked back to my car to get another bottle of mineral water. As I was getting it out of my trunk, a man driving a VW station wagon stopped and asked me if I needed help. I said that everything was all right and he drove away. I returned to water the plant and then I started back toward my car. When I was perhaps a hundred feet away, I heard some voices. I hurried down a slope onto the highway and found three Mexicans at the car, two men and one woman. 
One of the men was sitting on the front bumper. He was perhaps in his late thirties of medium height with black curly hair. He was carrying a bundle on his back and was wearing old slacks and a worn-out pinkish shirt. His shoes were untied and perhaps too big for his feet. They seemed to be loose and uncomfortable. He was sweating profusely. The other man was standing about twenty feet away from the car. He was small-boned and shorter than the other man, and his hair was straight and combed backwards. He carried a smaller bundle and was older, perhaps in his late forties. His clothes were in better condition. He had on a dark blue jacket, light blue slacks, and black shoes. He was not perspiring at all and seemed aloof, uninterested. The woman appeared to be also in her forties. She was fat and had a very dark complexion. She wore black capris, a white sweater, and black pointed shoes. She did not carry a bundle, but was holding a portable transistor radio. She seemed to be very tired, and her face was covered with beads of perspiration. When I approached them, the younger man and the woman accosted me. They wanted a ride. I told them I did not have any space in my car. I showed them that the back seat was loaded to capacity, and there was really no room left. The man suggested that if I drove slow, they could go perched on the back bumper or lying across the front fender. I felt the idea was preposterous. Yet there was such an urgency in their plea that I felt very sad and ill at ease. I gave them some money for their bus fare. The younger man took the bills and thanked me, but the older man turned his back disdainfully. "I want transportation," he said. "I'm not interested in money." Then he turned to me. "Can't you give us some food or water?" he asked. I really had nothing to give them. They stood there looking at me for a moment, and then they began to walk away. I got into my car and tried to start the motor. The heat was very intense, and the motor seemed to be flooded. The younger man stopped when he heard the starter grinding and came back and stood behind my car, ready to push it. I felt a tremendous apprehension. I was actually panting desperately. The motor finally ignited, and I zoomed away. After I had finished relating this, Don Juan remained pensive for a long time. Why haven't you told me this before? He said without looking at me. I didn't know what to say. I shrugged my shoulders and told him that I never thought it was important. It's damn important," he said. "Vicente is a first-rate sorcerer. He gave you something to plant because he had his reasons. And if you encountered three people who seemed to have popped out of nowhere right after you had planted it, there was a reason for that too. But only a fool like you would disregard the incident and think it wasn't important." Don Juan shook his head from side to side and, in a half-kidding tone, expressed his bewilderment at what he called my baffling good luck. He said that my visiting Don Vicente was like walking into a lion's den armed with a twig. You're a damn fool, he said, and looked stern for a moment. But I followed Don Vicente's instructions to the letter. So what? Don't you understand that to follow his instructions was meaningless? Why? Because those instructions were designed for someone who could see, not for an idiot who got out with his life just by sheer luck. You went to see Vicente without preparation. He liked you and gave you a gift. And that gift could easily have cost you your life. But why did he give me something so serious? If he's a sorcerer, he should have known that I don't know anything. No, he couldn't have seen that. You look as though you know, but you don't know much, really. I said I was sincerely convinced that I had never misrepresented myself, or at least not deliberately. He was quiet for some time. Then he shrugged his shoulders and smiled. It's useless to complain, he said. And yet, it's so difficult not to. Gifts of power happen so rarely in one's life; they're unique and precious. Take me, for instance. Nobody has ever made me such a gift. There are few people, to my knowledge, who ever had one. 
To waste something so unique is a shame. I see what you mean, Don Juan, I said. Is there anything I can do now to salvage the gift? He laughed and repeated several times, to salvage the gift. That sounds nice, he said. I like that. Yet there isn't anything one can do to salvage your gift. May 25th, 1968. Don Juan spent nearly all his time today showing me how to assemble trapping devices for small animals. We had been cutting and cleaning branches nearly all morning. There were many questions in my mind. I had to talk to him while we worked, but he had made a joke and said that of the two of us, only I could move my hands and my mouth at the same time. We finally sat down to rest and I blurted out a question. Don't I see things as they really are? No. Your eyes have learned only to look. Take, for example, the three people you encountered, the three Mexicans. You've described them in detail and even told me what clothes they wore, and that only proved to me that you didn't see them at all. If you were capable of seeing, you would have known on the spot that they were not people. They were not people. What were they? They were not people, that's all. But that's impossible. They were just like you and me. No, they were not. I'm sure of it. Don Juan said that the three people I had seen, whom he called those who are not people, los que no son gente, were in reality Don Vicente's allies. Real people look like luminous eggs when you see them. Non-people always look like people. That's what I meant when I said you cannot see an ally. Do you mean that some of the people I see in the streets are not really people, I asked, truly bewildered by his statement? Some of them are not, he said emphatically. On September 4th, 1968, I went to Sonora to visit Don Juan. Following a request he had made during my previous visit to him, I stopped on the way in Hermosillo to buy him a non-commercial tequila called Bocanora. His request seemed very odd to me at that time since I knew he disliked drinking, but I bought four bottles and put them in a box along with other things I had brought for him. Why, you got four bottles, he said laughing when he opened the box. I asked you to buy me one. I believe you thought the Bacanora was for me, but it's for my grandson, Lucio, and you have to give it to him as though it's a personal gift of your own. I had met Don Juan's grandson two years before. He was 28 years old then. He was very tall, over six feet, and was always extravagantly well-dressed for his means and in comparison to his peers. Lucio was delighted to receive the liquor and immediately took the bottles inside his house, apparently to put them away. Don Juan made a casual comment that one should never hoard liquor and drink alone. Lucio's house was a flimsy, two-room, dirt-floor, waddle-and-daub construction. There were eight men inside the house, including Don Juan. Lucio addressed the whole group in Spanish and said in a loud voice that we were going to drink one bottle of Bacanora that I had brought for him from Hermosillo. He went into the other room, brought out a bottle, uncorked it, and gave it to me along with a small tin cup. I poured a very small amount into the cup and drank it. The Bacanora seemed to be more fragrant and more dense than regular tequila, and stronger, too. It made me cough. I passed the bottle, and everyone poured himself a small drink, everyone except Don Juan. He just took the bottle and placed it in front of Lucio, who was at the end of the line. All of them made lively comments about the rich flavor of that particular bottle, and all of them agreed that the liquor must have come from the high mountains of Chihuahua. The bottle went around a second time. The men smacked their lips, repeated their statements of praise. During the second time around, Don Juan again did not drink, and I poured only a dab for myself, but the rest of them filled the cup to the brim. The bottle went around once more and was finished. Get the other bottles, Lucio, Don Juan said. 
Lucio seemed to vacillate, and Don Juan quite casually explained to the others that I had brought four bottles for Lucio. Carlos is learning about mescalito, and I'm teaching him, Don Juan said. All of them looked at me and smiled politely. Lucio went into the other room and returned with another bottle of Bacanora. He opened it, poured himself a large drink, and then passed it around. The conversation drifted to the probabilities of an American company coming to Sonora and its possible effect on the Yaquis. At one moment, the topics of conversation seemed to wane away. Don Juan turned to me and said loudly, Why don't you tell the guys here about your encounters with Mescalito? Is Mescalito peyote, Grandpa? Lucio asked curiously. Some people call it that way, Don Juan said dryly. I prefer to call it Mescalito. That confounded thing causes madness, said Gennaro, a tall, husky, middle-aged man. I think it's stupid to say that Mescalito causes madness, Don Juan said softly. Because if that were the case, Carlos would be in a straitjacket this very moment instead of being here talking to you. He has taken it, and look at him. He's fine. Bahia smiled and replied shyly, Who can tell? And everybody laughed. Look at me then, Don Juan said. I've known Mescalito nearly all my life, and it has never hurt me. The men did not laugh, but it was obvious that they were not taking him seriously. On the other hand, Don Juan went on, it's true that Mescalito drives people crazy, as you said, but that's only when they come to him without knowing what they're doing. Esquerri, an old man who seemed to be Don Juan's age, chuckled softly as he shook his head from side to side. What do you mean by knowing, Juan, he asked. The last time I saw you, you were saying the same thing. People really go crazy when they take that peyote stuff, Gennaro continued. I've seen the Huichol Indians eating it. They acted as if they had rabies. Don Juan says there is a spirit in peyote, Benigno said. I've seen peyote in the field, but I've never seen spirits or anything of that sort, Bahia added. Mescalito is like a spirit, perhaps, Don Juan explained. But whatever he is doesn't become clear until one knows about him. Bahia says that whoever takes it becomes an animal. Well, I don't see it that way. To me, those who think they are above animals live worse than animals. Look at my grandson here. He works without rest. I would say he lives to work like a mule. And all he does that is not animal-like is to get drunk. Everybody laughed. Victor, a very young man who seemed to be still in adolescence, laughed in a pitch above everybody else. Eligio, a young farmer, had not uttered a single word so far. He was sitting on the floor to my right. In what way would Peyote change all this, he asked. It seems to me that a man is born to work all his life, like mules do. Mescalito changes everything, Don Juan said. Yet we still have to work like everybody else, like mules. How can it change us, Eligio insisted. He teaches us the right way to live, Don Juan said. He helps and protects those who know him. The life you fellows are leading is no life at all. You don't know the happiness that comes from doing things deliberately. You don't have a protector. This is why you fellows are all drunkards. Look at my grandson here. Cut it out, Grandpa, Lucio protested. He's not lazy or stupid, Don Juan went on. But what else does he do beside drink? He buys leather jackets, Gennaro remarked, and the whole audience roared. Lucio gulped down more bacanora. And how is Peyote going to change that, Eligio asked. If Lucio would seek the protector, Don Juan said, his life would be changed. I don't know exactly how, but I am sure it would be different. He would stop drinking, is that what you mean, Eligio insisted? Perhaps he would. 
He needs something else beside tequila to make his life satisfying. If you think how little we know and how much there is to see, booze is what makes people crazy. It blurs the images. Mescalito, on the other hand, sharpens everything. It makes you see so very well, so very well. Lucio and Benigno looked at each other and smiled as though they had already heard the story before. Gennaro and Esquere grew more impatient and began to talk at the same time. Victor laughed above all the other voices. The only one interested seemed to be Eligio. How can Peyote do all that, he asked. In the first place, Don Juan explained, you must want to become acquainted with him, and I think this is by far the most important thing. Then you must be offered to him, and you must meet with him many times before you can say you know him. And what happens then, Eligio asked. Gennaro interrupted. You crap on the roof with your ass on the ground. The audience roared. There was a long pause. The men seemed to be tired. The bottle was empty. Lucio, with obvious reluctance, opened another. Is Peyote Carlos protector too, Eligio asked. I wouldn't know that, Don Juan said. He's taken it three times, so ask him to tell you about it. They all turned to me curiously, and Eligio asked, Did you really take it? Yes, I did. Didn't it hurt your mouth, Lucio asked? It did. It also tasted terrible. Were you afraid, Benigno asked? I certainly was. Why did you do it then, Eligio asked. He said he wanted to know, Lucio answered for me. I think Carlos is getting to be like my grandpa. Both have been saying they want to know, but nobody knows what in the hell they want to know. It is impossible to explain that knowing, Don Juan said to Eligio, because it is different for every man. Eligio seemed to be nervous. He said to Don Juan, How can peyote change our life? How? Don Juan did not answer. He stared fixedly at Eligio for a moment and then began to sing in Yaki. It was not a song proper, but a short recitation. We remained quiet for a long time. Then I asked Don Juan to translate the Yaki words for me. That was only for Yaki's, he said matter-of-factly. I felt dejected. I was sure he had said something of great importance. Don Juan got up. It's time to go home, he said. Lucio is drunk and Victor is asleep. September 16th, 1968. Don Juan and I sat quietly for a very long time. He seemed to be tired. I broke the silence and asked him about Eligio. Don Juan did not speak for a long time. He seemed to have become engulfed by thoughts. My setup was for Lucio, he said, and I found Eligio instead. I knew it was useless. But when we like someone, we should properly insist, as though it were possible to remake men. Lucio had courage when he was a little boy, and then he lost it along the way. He said that Lucio had always been his great concern, and that at one time they had lived together and were very close. But Lucio became gravely ill when he was seven, and Don Juan's son, a devout Catholic, made a vow to the Virgin of Guadalupe that Lucio would join a sacred dancing society if his life were spared. Lucio recovered and was forced to carry out the promise. He lasted one week as an apprentice and then made up his mind to break the vow. He thought he would have to die as a result of it, braced himself, and for a whole day he waited for death to come. Everybody made fun of the boy and the incident was never forgotten. October 4th, 1968. At a certain moment today I asked Don Juan if he minded talking a bit more about seeing. If you want to see, you have to let the smoke guide you, he said emphatically. I won't talk about this anymore. I was helping him clean some dry herbs. We worked in complete silence for a long time. 
At a given moment, I brought up a question to him in a sort of compulsive, almost belligerent outburst. How does a man of knowledge exercise controlled folly when it comes to the death of a person he loves, I asked. Don Juan was taken aback by my question and looked at me quizzically. Take your grandson, Lucio, I said. Would your acts be controlled folly at the time of his death? Take my son, Ulalio. That's a better example, Don Juan replied calmly. He was crushed by rocks while working in the construction of the Pan-American Highway. My acts toward him at the moment of his death were controlled folly. When I came down to the blasting area, he was almost dead, but his body was so strong that it kept on moving and kicking. I stood in front of him and told the boys in the road crew not to move him anymore. They obeyed me and stood there surrounding my son, looking at his mangled body. I stood there too, but I did not look. I shifted my eyes so I would see his personal life disintegrating, expanding uncontrollably beyond its limits, like a fog of crystals, because that is the way life and death mix and expand. That is what I did at the time of my son's death. That's all one could ever do, and that is controlled folly. Had I looked at him, I would have watched him becoming immobile, and I would have felt a cry inside of me because never again would I look at his fine figure pacing the earth. I saw his death instead, and there was no sadness, no feeling. His death was equal to everything else. Don Juan was quiet for a moment. He seemed to be sad, but then he smiled and tapped my head. I thought about the people I love myself, and a terribly oppressive wave of self-pity enveloped me. Lucky you, Don Juan, I said. You can shift your eyes while I can only look. He found my statement funny and laughed. Lucky. Bull, he said. It's hard work. Just as we were getting into my car to start on a trip to central Mexico on October 5th, 1968, Don Juan stopped me. I have told you before, he said with a serious expression, that one should never reveal the name nor the whereabouts of a sorcerer. I believe you understood that you should never reveal my name nor the place where my body is. Now I'm going to ask you to do the same with a friend of mine, a friend you will call Gennaro. We are going to his house. We'll spend some time there. I assured Don Juan that I had never betrayed his confidence. I know that, he said without changing his serious expression. Yet I'm concerned with your becoming thoughtless. I protested, and Don Juan said his aim was only to remind me that every time one was careless in matters of sorcery, one was playing with an imminent and senseless death that could be averted by being thoughtful and aware. We will not touch upon this matter any longer, he said. Once we leave my house, we will not mention Gennaro, nor will we think about him. I want you to put your thoughts in order now. When you meet him, you must be clear and have no doubts in your mind. What kind of doubts are you referring to, Don Juan? Any kind of doubts, whatever. When you meet him, you ought to be crystal clear. He will see you. His strange admonitions made me very apprehensive. I mentioned that perhaps I should not meet his friend at all, but only drive to the vicinity of his friend's house and leave him there. What I've told you was only a precaution, he said. You've met one sorcerer already, Vicente, and he nearly killed you. Watch out this time. After we arrived in central Mexico, it took us two days to walk from where I left my car to his friend's house, a little shack perched on the side of a mountain. Don Juan's friend was at the door as if he had been waiting for us. You're welcome to my humble little shack, he said apologetically in Spanish. His words were a polite formula I had heard before in various rural areas of Mexico. Yet as he said the words, he laughed joyously for no overt reason, and I knew he was exercising his controlled folly. 
He did not care in the least that his house was a shack. I liked Don Gennaro very much. For the next two days, we went into the mountains to collect plants. Don Juan, Don Gennaro, and I left each day at the crack of dawn. We returned to the house in the late afternoon, and both days I was so tired that I fell asleep immediately. The third day, however, was different. The three of us worked together, and Don Juan asked Don Gennaro to teach me how to select certain plants. We returned around noon, and the old men sat for hours in front of the house in complete silence, as if they were in a state of trance. You must talk to the plants before you pick them, Don Juan said. He dropped his words casually and repeated his statement three times, as if to catch my attention. Nobody had said a word until he spoke. It was late in the afternoon. Don Juan was sitting on a flat rock facing the western mountains. Don Gennaro was sitting by him on a straw mat with his face toward the north. Don Juan had told me the first day we were there that those were their positions and that I had to sit on the ground at any place opposite to both of them. Don Gennaro was staring at me. I was taking notes, and that seemed to baffle him. He smiled at me, shook his head, and said something to Don Juan. Don Juan shrugged his shoulders. I glanced at Don Gennaro and saw him performing a most unusual act. He was standing on his head without the aid of his arms or hands, and his legs were crossed as if he were sitting. The sight was so incongruous that it made me jump. When I realized he was doing something almost impossible from the point of view of body mechanics, he had gone back again to a normal sitting position. Don Juan, however, seemed to be cognizant of what was involved and celebrated Don Gennaro's performance with roaring laughter. Don Gennaro seemed to have noticed my confusion. He clapped his hands a couple of times and rolled on the ground again. Apparently, he wanted me to watch him. What had at first appeared to be rolling on the ground was actually leaning over in a sitting position and touching the ground with his head. He seemingly attained his illogical posture by gaining momentum, leaning over several times until the inertia carried his body to a vertical stand so that for an instant he sat on his head. The two of them had another moment of mirth, then Don Juan became serious again and said that if I did not think of my death, my entire life would be only a personal chaos. He looked very stern. What else can a man have except his life and his death, he said to me. At that point I felt it was indispensable to take notes and I began writing again. Don Gennaro stared at me and smiled. Then he tilted his head back a little and opened his nostrils. He apparently had remarkable control over the muscles operating his nostrils because they opened up to perhaps twice their normal size. What was most comical about his clowning was not so much his gestures as his own reactions to them. After he enlarged his nostrils, he tumbled down, laughing, and worked his body again into the same strange sitting-on-his-head-upside-down posture. Don Juan laughed until tears rolled down his cheeks. I felt a bit embarrassed and laughed nervously. Don Juan looked at me still laughing and said that his friend was portraying me, that my tendency was to open my nostrils whenever I wrote, and that Don Gennaro thought that trying to become a sorcerer by taking notes was as absurd as sitting on one's head, and thus he had made up the ludicrous posture of resting the weight of his sitting body on his head. Perhaps you don't think it's funny, Don Juan said but only Gennaro can work his way up to sitting on his head, and only you can think of learning to be a sorcerer by writing your way up. They both had another explosion of laughter, and Don Gennaro repeated his incredible movement. I liked him. There was so much grace and directness in his acts. Which direction is the wind? Don Gennaro asked casually. Don Juan pointed to the west with a movement of his head. I'd better go where the wind blows, Don Gennaro said with a serious expression. He then turned and shook his finger at me. 
And don't you pay any attention if you hear strange noises, he said. When Gennaro shits, the mountains tremble. He leaped into the bushes, and a moment later I heard a very strange noise, a deep, unearthly rumble. I did not know what to make of it. I looked at Don Juan for a clue, but he was doubled over with laughter. October 17, 1968 I don't remember what prompted Don Gennaro to tell me about the arrangement of the other world, as he called it. When he had finished talking, Don Juan looked at me and smiled knowingly. Talking is not Gennaro's predilection, he said. But if you care to get a lesson, he will teach you about the equilibrium of things. Don Gennaro nodded affirmatively. He puckered up his mouth and closed his eyelids halfway. I thought his gesture was delightful. Don Gennaro stood up, and so did Don Juan. All right, Don Gennaro said. Let's go, then. We could go and wait for Nestor and Pablito. They're through now. On Thursdays, they're through early. Both of them got into my car. Don Juan sat in the front. I did not ask them anything, but simply started the engine. Don Juan directed me to a place he said was Nestor's home. Don Gennaro went into the house, and a while later came out with Nestor and Pablito, two young men who were his apprentices. They all got in my car, and Don Juan told me to take the road toward the western mountains. We left my car on the side of the dirt road and walked along the bank of a river, which was perhaps 15 or 20 feet across, to a waterfall that was visible from where I had parked. It was late afternoon. The scenery was quite impressive. We stopped at the bottom of the waterfall. It was perhaps 150 feet high. The roar was very loud. Don Gennaro fastened a belt around his waist. He had at least seven items hanging from it. They looked like small gourds. The belt seemed to be made of woven strips of leather. I could not see whether he tied it or buckled it. Don Gennaro walked toward the waterfall. Don Juan manipulated a round rock into a steady position and sat down on it. The other two young men did the same with some rocks and sat down to his left. Don Juan pointed to the place next to him on his right side and told me to bring a rock and sit by him. We must make a line here, he said, showing me that the three were sitting in a row. By then, Don Gennaro had reached the very bottom of the waterfall and had begun climbing a trail on the right side of it. From where we were sitting, the trail looked fairly steep. There were lots of shrubs he used as railings. At one moment, he seemed to lose his footing and almost slid down as if the dirt were slippery. A moment later, the same thing happened, and the thought crossed my mind that perhaps Don Gennaro was too old to be climbing. I saw him slipping and stumbling several times before he reached the spot where the trail ended. Don Juan was looking straight at Don Gennaro. His gaze was fixed. His eyelids were half-closed. He was sitting very erect with his hands resting between his legs on the edge of the rock. Don Gennaro had climbed quite a way on the rocky wall. At the moment I looked, he was perched on a ledge, inching his way slowly to circumvent a huge boulder. His arms were spread as if he were embracing the rock. He moved slowly toward his right, and suddenly he lost his footing. I gasped involuntarily. For a moment, his whole body hung in the air. I was sure he was going to fall, but he did not. His right hand had grabbed onto something, and very agilely his feet went back on the ledge again. But before he moved on, he turned to us and looked. It was only a glance. There was, however, such a stylization to the movement of turning his head that I began to wonder. I remembered then that he had done the same thing, turning to look at us every time he slipped. I had thought that Don Gennaro must have felt embarrassed by his clumsiness and turned to see if we were looking. He climbed a bit more toward the top, suffered another loss of footing, and hung perilously on the overhanging rock face. This time he was supported by his left hand. When he regained his balance, he turned and looked at us again. 
He slipped twice more before he reached the top. From where we were sitting, the crest of the waterfall seemed to be 20 to 25 feet across. Don Gennaro stood motionless for a moment. I wanted to ask Don Juan what Don Gennaro was going to do up there, but Don Juan seemed to be so absorbed in watching that I did not dare disturb him. Suddenly, Don Gennaro jumped onto the water. It was such a thoroughly unexpected action that I felt a vacuum in the pit of my stomach. It was a magnificent, outlandish leap. For a second, I had the clear sensation that I had seen a series of superimposed images of his body making an elliptical flight to the middle of the stream. When my surprise receded, I noticed that he had landed on a rock on the edge of the fall, a rock which was barely visible from where we were sitting. He stayed perched there for a long time. He seemed to be fighting the power of the onrushing water. Twice he hung over the precipice, and I could not determine what he was clinging to. He gained his balance and squatted on the rock, then he leaped again like a tiger. I could barely see the next rock where he landed. It was like a small cone on the very edge of the fall. He remained there almost ten minutes. He was motionless. His immobility was so impressive to me that I was shivering. I wanted to get up and walk around. Don Juan noticed my nervousness and told me imperatively to be calm. Don Gennaro's stillness plunged me into an extraordinary and mysterious terror. I felt that if he remained perched there any longer, I could not control myself. Suddenly he jumped again, this time all the way to the other bank of the waterfall. He landed on his feet and hands like a feline. He remained in a squat position for a moment, then he stood up and looked across the fall to the other side and then down at us. He stayed dead still looking at us. His hands were clasped at his sides as if he were holding on to an unseen railing. There was something truly exquisite about his posture. His body seemed so nimble, so frail. I thought that Don Gennaro with his headband and feathers, his dark poncho and his bare feet was the most beautiful human being I had ever seen. He threw his arms up suddenly, lifted his head and flipped his body swiftly in a sort of lateral somersault to his left. The boulder where he had been standing was round, and when he jumped, he disappeared behind it. Huge drops of rain began to fall at that moment. Don Juan got up, and so did the two young men. Their movement was so abrupt that it confused me. Don Gennaro's masterful feet had thrown me into a state of profound emotional excitement. I felt he was a consummate artist, and I wanted to see him right then to applaud him. I strained to look on the left side of the waterfall to see if he was coming down, but he was not. I insisted on knowing what happened to him. Let him be wherever he is. Perhaps he is an eagle flying to the other world, or perhaps he has died up there. It doesn't matter now. October 23, 1968. Don Juan casually mentioned that he was going to make another trip to central Mexico in the near future. Are you going to visit Don Gennaro? I asked. Perhaps, he said without looking at me. He's all right, isn't he, Don Juan? I mean, nothing bad happened to him up there on top of the waterfall, did it? Nothing happened to him. He is sturdy. Don Juan looked at me and said in a mischievous tone, You're dying to ask me about Gennaro's lesson, aren't you? I laughed with embarrassment. I had been obsessed with everything that took place at the waterfall. Gennaro risked a great deal to show you something magnificent. Too bad you can't see. Seeing is very difficult, he said. I begged him to explain his statement. Seeing is not a matter of talk, he said imperatively. Obviously, he was not going to tell me anything more, so I gave up and left the house to run some errands for him. When I returned, it was already dark. We had something to eat, and afterwards we walked out to the Ramada. 
We had no sooner sat down than Juan began to talk about Don Gennaro's lesson. He said that Don Gennaro, being a master of balance, could perform very complex and difficult movements. The action of sitting on his head without the aid of his hands was at best a freakish stunt that lasted only an instant. In Don Gennaro's opinion, writing about seeing was the same. That is, it was a precarious maneuver, as odd and as unnecessary as sitting on one's head. Don Juan peered at me in the dark and in a very dramatic tone said that while Don Gennaro was horsing around sitting on his head, I was on the very verge of seeing. Don Gennaro noticed it and repeated his maneuvers over and over to no avail because I had lost the thread right away. Don Juan said that afterwards Don Gennaro, moved by his personal liking for me, attempted in a very dramatic way to bring me back to that verge of seeing. After very careful deliberation, he decided to show me a feat of equilibrium by crossing the waterfall. He felt that the waterfall was like the edge on which I was standing and was confident I could also make it across. Don Juan then explained Don Gennaro's feat. He said that he had already told me that human beings were, for those who saw, luminous beings composed of something like fibers of light which rotated from the front to the back and maintained the appearance of an egg. He said that he had also told me that the most astonishing part of the egg-like creatures was a set of long fibers that came out of the area around the navel. Don Juan said that those fibers were of the utmost importance in the life of a man. Those fibers were the secret of Don Gennaro's balance, and his lesson had nothing to do with acrobatic jumps across the waterfall. His feat of equilibrium was in the way he used those tentacle-like fibers. Don Juan dropped the subject as suddenly as he had started it and began to talk about something thoroughly unrelated. October 24th, 1968. I cornered Don Juan and told him I intuitively felt that I was never going to get another lesson in equilibrium and that he had to explain to me all the pertinent details which I would otherwise never discover by myself. Don Juan said I was right, insofar as knowing that Don Gennaro would never give me another lesson. What else do you want to know, he asked. What are those tentacle-like fibers, Don Juan? They are the tentacles that come out of a man's body, which are apparent to any sorcerer who sees. Sorcerers act toward people in accordance to the way they see their tentacles. Weak persons have very short, almost invisible fibers. Strong persons have bright, long ones. Gennaros, for instance, are so bright that they resemble thickness. You can tell from the fibers if a person is healthy, or if he is sick, or if he is mean, or kind, or treacherous. You can also tell from the fibers if a person can see. Here is a baffling problem. When Gennaro saw you, he knew, just like my friend Vicente did, that you could see. When I see you, I see that you can see, and yet I know myself that you can't. How baffling. Gennaro couldn't get over that. I told him that you were a strange fool. I think he wanted to see that for himself and took you to the waterfall. You think everything in the world is simple to understand, he said because everything you do is a routine that is simple to understand. At the waterfall, when you looked at Gennaro moving across the water, you believed that he was a master of somersaults, because somersaults was all you could think about, and that is all you will ever believe he did. Yet Gennaro never jumped across that water. If he had jumped, he would have died. Gennaro balanced himself on his superb, bright fibers. He made them long, long enough so that he could, let's say, roll on them across the waterfall. He demonstrated the proper way to make those tentacles long and how to move them with precision. Ablito saw nearly all of Gennaro's movements, 
Nestor, on the other hand, saw only the most obvious maneuvers. He missed the delicate details. But you, you saw nothing. If you could see, he said, it would have been obvious to you from the first step that Gennaro took that he was not slipping as he went up the side of the waterfall. He was loosening his tentacles. Twice he made them go around boulders and held to the sheer rock like a fly. When he got to the top and was ready to cross the water, he focused them onto a small rock in the middle of the stream, and when they were secured there, he let the fibers pull him. Gennaro never jumped. Therefore, he could land on the slippery surfaces of small boulders at the very edge of the water. His fibers were at all times neatly wrapped around every rock he used. He did not stay on the first boulder very long because he had the rest of his fibers tied onto another one, even smaller, at the place where the onrush of water was the greatest. His tentacles pulled him again and he landed on it. That was the most outstanding thing he did. The surface was too small for a man to hold on to, and the onrush of the water would have washed his body over the precipice had he not had some of his fibers still focused on the first rock. He stayed in that second position for a long time, because he had to draw out his tentacles again and send them across to the other side of the fall. When he had them secured, he had to release the fibers focused on the first rock. That was very tricky. Perhaps only Gennaro could do that. He nearly lost his grip, or maybe he was only fooling us. We'll never know that for sure. Personally, I really think he nearly lost his grip. I know that because he became rigid and sent out a magnificent chute like a beam of light across the water. I feel that beam alone could have pulled him through. When he got to the other side, he stood up and let his fibers glow like a cluster of lights. That was the one thing he did just for you. If you had been able to see, you would have seen that. Gennaro stood there looking at you, and then he knew that you had not seen. Don Juan was not at his house when I arrived there at midday on November 8, 1968. I had no idea where to look for him, so I sat and waited. For some unknown reason, I knew he would soon be home. A short while later, Don Juan walked into his house. He nodded at me. We exchanged greetings. He seemed to be tired and lay down on his mat. He yawned a couple of times. The idea of seeing had become an obsession with me, and I had made up my mind to use his hallucinogenic smoking mixture again. It had been a terribly difficult decision to make, so I still wanted to argue the point a bit further. I want to learn to see, Don Juan, I said bluntly, but I really don't want to take anything. I don't want to smoke your mixture. Do you think there is any chance I could learn to see without it? He sat up, stared at me for a moment, and lay down again. No, he said. You'll have to use the smoke. Seeing is not so simple, and only the smoke can give you the speed you need to catch a glimpse of that fleeting world. Otherwise, you will only look. The next day, November 9th, Don Juan let me eat only a morsel of food and told me to rest. I lay around all morning, but I could not relax. I had no idea what Don Juan had in mind, but worst of all, I was not certain what I had in mind myself. You haven't prepared your mixture for three years, he said suddenly. You'll have to smoke my mixture, so let's say that I have collected it for you. You'll need only a bit of it. I will fill the pipe's bowl once. You will smoke all of it and then rest. Then the keeper of the other world will come. You will do nothing but observe it. Observe how it moves. Observe everything it does. Your life may depend on how well you watch. Don Juan flatly refused to involve himself in conversation, but I was too nervous to stop talking, and I insisted desperately that he tell me about this guardian. 
You'll see it, he said casually. It guards the other world. With that, Don Juan went inside the house. I followed him into his room. Wait, wait, Don Juan, what are you going to do? He did not answer. He took his pipe out of a bundle and sat down on a straw mat in the center of the room, looking at me inquisitively. He seemed to be waiting for my consent. You're a fool, he said softly. You're not afraid. You just say you're afraid. He shook his head slowly from side to side. Then he took the little bag with the smoking mixture and filled the pipe bowl. I am afraid, Don Juan. I'm really afraid. No, it's not fear. I paced up and down the room in front of Don Juan, who was still sitting on his mat, holding his pipe and looking at me inquisitively. And upon considering the matter, I arrived at the conclusion that what I felt, instead of my usual fear, was a profound sense of displeasure, a discomfort at the mere thought of the confusion created by the intake of hallucinogenic plants. Don Juan stared at me for an instant, then he looked past me, squinting as if he were struggling to detect something in the distance. I kept walking back and forth in front of him until he forcefully told me to sit down and relax. We sat quietly for a few minutes. You don't want to lose your clarity, do you? He said abruptly. That's very right, Don Juan, I said. He laughed with apparent delight. Clarity, the second enemy of a man of knowledge, has loomed upon you. You're not afraid, he said reassuringly, but now you hate to lose your clarity. And since you're a fool, you call that fear. He chuckled. Get me some charcoals, he ordered. His tone was kind and reassuring. I got up automatically and went to the back of the house and gathered some small pieces of burning charcoal from the fire, put them on top of a small stone slab and returned to the room. Come out here to the porch, Don Juan called loudly from outside. He placed a straw mat on the spot where I usually sit. I put the charcoals next to him and he blew on them to activate the fire. I was about to sit down, but he stopped me and told me to sit on the right edge of the mat. He then put a piece of charcoal in the pipe and handed it to me. I took it. I was amazed at the silent forcefulness with which Don Juan had steered me. I could not think of anything to say. I had no more arguments. I was convinced that I was not afraid, but only unwilling to lose my clarity. Puff, puff, he ordered me gently. Just one bowl this time. I sucked on the pipe and heard the chirping of the mixture catching on fire. I felt an instantaneous coat of ice inside my mouth and my nose. I took another puff and the coating extended to my chest. When I had taken the last puff, I felt that the entire inside of my body was coated with a peculiar sensation of cold warmth. Don Juan took the pipe away from me and tapped the bowl on his palm to loosen the residue. Then, as he always does, he wet his finger with saliva and rubbed it inside the bowl. My body was numb, but I could move. I changed positions to sit more comfortably. What's going to happen, I asked. I had some difficulty vocalizing. Don Juan very carefully put his pipe inside its sheath and rolled it up in a long piece of cloth. Then he sat up straight, facing me. I felt dizzy. My eyes were closing involuntarily. Don Juan shook me vigorously and ordered me to stay awake. He said I knew very well that if I fell asleep I would die. That jolted me. It occurred to me that Don Juan was probably just saying that to keep me awake. But on the other hand, it also occurred to me that he might be right. I opened my eyes as wide as I could, and that made Don Juan laugh. He said that I had to wait for a while and keep my eyes open all the time, and that at a given moment I would be able to see the guardian of the other world. I felt a very annoying heat all over my body. I tried to change position, but I could not move anymore. I wanted to talk to Don Juan. The words seemed to be so deep inside of me that I could not bring them out. 
Then I tumbled on my left side and found myself looking at Don Juan from the floor. He leaned over and ordered me in a whisper not to look at him, but to stare fixedly at a point on my mat which was directly in front of my eyes. He said that I had to look with one eye, my left eye, and that sooner or later I would see the guardian. I fixed my stare on the spot he had pointed to, but I did not see anything. At a certain moment, however, I noticed a gnat flying in front of my eyes. It landed on the mat. I followed its movements. It came very close to me, so close that my visual perception blurred. And then, all of a sudden, I felt as if I had stood up. It was a very puzzling sensation that deserved some pondering, but there was no time for that. I had the total sensation that I was looking straight onward from my usual eye level, and what I saw shook up the last fiber of my being. There is no other way to describe the emotional jolt I experienced. Right there, facing me a short distance away, was a gigantic, monstrous animal, a truly monstrous thing. Never in the wildest fantasies of fiction had I encountered anything like it. I looked at it in complete, utmost bewilderment. The first thing I really noticed was its size. I thought for some reason it must be close to a hundred feet tall. It seemed to be standing erect, although I could not figure out how it stood. Next I noticed that it had wings, two short, wide wings. At that point I became aware that I insisted on examining the animal as if it were an ordinary sight. That is, I looked at it. However, I could not really look at it in the way I was accustomed to looking. I realized that I was rather noticing things about it, as if the picture were becoming more clear as parts were added. Its body was covered with tufts of black hair. It had a long muzzle and was drooling. Its eyes were bulgy and round, like two enormous white balls. Then it began to beat its wings. It was not the flapping motion of a bird's wings, but a kind of flickering, vibratory tremor. It gained speed and began circling in front of me. It was not flying, but rather skidding with astonishing speed and agility just a few inches above the ground. For a moment I found myself engrossed in watching it move. I thought that its movements were ugly, and yet its speed and easiness were superb. It circled twice in front of me, vibrating its wings, and whatever was drooling out of its mouth flew in all directions. Then it turned around and skidded away at an incredible speed until it disappeared in the distance. I stared fixedly in the direction it had gone because there was nothing else I could do. I had a most peculiar sensation of being incapable of organizing my thoughts coherently. I could not move away. It was as if I were glued to the spot. Then I saw something like a cloud in the distance. An instant later, the gigantic beast was circling again at full speed in front of me. Its wings cut closer and closer to my eyes until they hit me. I felt that its wings had actually hit whatever part of me was there. I yelled with all my might in the midst of one of the most excruciating pains I have ever had. The next thing I knew, I was seated on my mat, and Don Juan was rubbing my forehead. He rubbed my arms and legs with leaves, then he took me to an irrigation ditch behind his house, took off my clothes and submerged me completely, and pulled me out and submerged me over and over again. As I lay on the shallow bottom of the irrigation ditch, Don Juan pulled up my left foot from time to time and tapped the sole gently. After a while, I felt a ticklishness. He noticed it and said that I was all right. I put on my clothes and we returned to his house. I sat down again on my straw mat and tried to talk, but I felt I could not concentrate on what I wanted to say, although my thoughts were very clear. I was amazed to realize how much concentration was necessary to talk. I also noticed that in order to say something... I had to stop looking at things. I had the impression that I was entangled at a very deep level, and when I wanted to talk, I had to surface like a diver. I had to ascend as if pulled by my words. Twice I went as far as clearing my throat in a fashion which was perfectly ordinary. 
I could have said then whatever I wanted to, but I did not. I preferred to remain at the strange level of silence where I could just look. I had the feeling that I was beginning to tap what Don Juan had called seeing, and that made me very happy. Afterwards, Don Juan gave me some soup and tortillas and ordered me to eat. I was able to eat without any trouble and without losing what I thought to be my power of seeing. I focused my gaze on everything around me. I was convinced I could see everything, and yet the world looked the same to the best of my assessment. I struggled to see until it was quite dark. I finally got tired and lay down and went to sleep. I woke up when Don Juan covered me with a blanket. I had a headache and was sick to my stomach. After a while, I felt better and slept soundly until the next day. In the morning, I was myself again. I asked Don Juan eagerly, What happened to me? Don Juan laughed coyly. You went to look for the keeper, and of course you found it, he said. November 12, 1968. This morning, Don Juan and I went to the nearby hills to collect plants. We walked about six miles on extremely rough terrain. I became very tired. We sat down to rest at my initiative, and he began a conversation, saying that he was pleased with my progress. Later on, we talked again about the guardian of the other world. If I believe that whatever I have experienced is actually real, I said, then the guardian is a gigantic creature that can cause unbelievable physical pain. And if I believe that one can actually travel enormous distances by an act of will, then it's logical to conclude that I could also will the monster to disappear. Is that correct? Not exactly, he said. You cannot will the guardian to disappear. Your will can stop it from harming you, though. Of course, if you ever accomplish that, the road is open to you. You can actually go by the guardian, and there's nothing that it can do, not even whirl around madly. How can I accomplish that? You already know how. All you need now is practice. I told him that we were having a misunderstanding that stemmed from our differences in perceiving the world. You really know how to talk and say nothing, don't you? He said, laughing. I've told you, you have to have an unbending intent in order to become a man of knowledge. But you seem to have an unbending intent to confuse yourself with riddles. You insist on explaining everything as if the whole world were composed of things that can be explained. Now you are confronted with the guardian and with the problem of moving by using your will. Has it ever occurred to you that only a few things in this world can be explained your way? When I say that the Guardian is really blocking your passing and could actually knock the devil out of you, I know what I mean. When I say that one can move by one's will, I also know what I mean. Don Juan asked me abruptly if I was planning to leave for home during the weekend. I said I intended to leave Monday morning. We were sitting under his ramada around midday on Saturday, January 18, 1969, taking a rest after a long walk in the nearby hills. Don Juan got up and went into the house. A few moments later, he called me inside. He was sitting in the middle of his room and had placed my straw mat in front of his. He motioned me to sit down, and without saying a word, he unwrapped his pipe, took it out of its sheath, filled its bowl with his smoking mixture, and lit it. He had even brought into his room a clay tray filled with small charcoals. He did not ask me whether I was willing to smoke. He just handed me the pipe and told me to puff. I did not hesitate. Don Juan had apparently assessed my mood correctly. My overwhelming curiosity about the Guardian must have been obvious to him. I did not need any coaxing and eagerly smoked the entire bowl. Don Juan lay down on his side facing me. I felt very content. It's nice, I said. Don Juan got up hurriedly. Don't you dare start with this crap, he said forcefully. Don't talk. 
You'll waste every bit of energy talking, and then the Guardian will mash you down like you would smash a gnat. He must have thought that his simile was funny because he began to laugh, but he stopped suddenly. Don't talk, please, don't talk, he said with a serious look on his face. I wasn't about to say anything, I said, and I really did not want to say that. Don Juan got up. I saw him walking away toward the back of his house. A moment later, I noticed that a gnat had landed on my mat, and that filled me with a kind of anxiety I had never experienced before. It was a mixture of elation, anguish, and fear. I was totally aware that something transcendental was about to unfold in front of me, a gnat who guarded the other world. It was a ludicrous thought. I felt like laughing out loud. But then I realized that my elation was distracting me, and I was going to miss a transition period I wanted to clarify. In my previous attempt to see the Guardian, I had looked at the gnat first with my left eye, and then I felt that I had stood up and looked at it with both eyes, but I was not aware how that transition had occurred. I saw the gnat whirling around on the mat in front of my face and realized that I was looking at it with both eyes. It came very close. At a given moment, I could not see it with both eyes any longer and shifted the view to my left eye, which was level with the ground. The instant I changed focus, I also felt that I had straightened my body to a fully vertical position and I was looking at an unbelievably enormous animal. It was brilliantly black. Its front was covered with long, black, insidious hair which looked like spikes coming through the cracks of some slick, shiny scales. The hair was actually arranged in tufts. Its body was massive, thick and round. Its wings were wide and short in comparison to the length of its body. It had two white, bulging eyes and a long muzzle. This time it looked more like an alligator. It seemed to have long ears or perhaps horns, and it was drooling. I strained myself to fix my gaze on it and then became fully aware that I could not look at it in the same way I ordinarily look at things. I had a strange thought. Looking at the Guardian's body, I felt that every single part of it was independently alive, as the eyes of men are alive. I realized then for the first time in my life that the eyes were the only part of a man that could show to me whether or not he was alive. The Guardian, on the other hand, had a million eyes. I thought this was a remarkable finding. Before this experience, I had speculated on the similes that could describe the distortions that rendered a gnat as a gigantic beast, and I had thought that a good simile was as if looking at an insect through the magnifying lens of a microscope. But that was not so. Apparently, viewing the Guardian was much more complex than looking at a magnified insect. The Guardian began to whirl in front of me. At one moment it stopped and I felt it was looking at me. I noticed then that it made no sound. The dance of the Guardian was silent. The awesomeness was in its appearance, its bulging eyes, its horrendous mouth, its drooling, its insidious hair, and above all, its incredible size. I watched very closely the way it moved its wings, how it made them vibrate without sound. I watched how it skidded over the ground like a monumental ice skater. Looking at that nightmarish creature in front of me, I actually felt elated. I really believed I had discovered the secret of overpowering it. I thought the Guardian was only a moving picture on a silent screen. It could not harm me. It only looked terrifying. The Guardian was standing still, facing me. Suddenly it fluttered its wings and turned around. Its back looked like brilliantly colored armor. Its shine was dazzling, but the hue was nauseating. It was my unfavorable color. The Guardian remained with its back turned to me for a while, and then, fluttering its wings, again skidded out of sight. I was confronted with a very strange dilemma. I honestly believed that I had overpowered it by realizing that it presented only a picture of wrath. My belief was perhaps due to Don Juan's insistence that I knew more than I was willing to admit. At any rate, I felt I had overcome the Guardian and the path was free. 
yet I did not know how to proceed. Don Juan had not told me what to do in such a case. I tried to turn and look behind me, but I was unable to move. However, I could see very well over the major part of a 180-degree range in front of my eyes, and what I saw was a cloudy, pale yellow horizon. It seemed gaseous, a sort of lemon hue uniformly covered all I could see. It seemed that I was on a plateau filled with vapors of sulfur. Suddenly, the guardian appeared again at a point on the horizon. It made a wide circle before stopping in front of me. Its mouth was wide open like a huge cavern. It had no teeth. It vibrated its wings for an instant, and then it charged at me. It actually charged at me like a bull, and with its gigantic wings, it swung at my eyes. I screamed with pain, and then I flew up, or rather, I felt I had ejected myself up and went soaring beyond the guardian, beyond the yellowish plateau, into another world, the world of men, and I found myself standing in the middle of Don Juan's room. January 19th, 1969. I really thought I had overpowered the guardian, I said to Don Juan. You must be kidding, he said. You must not try to see the guardian ever again. It's not your temperament to cross that plane. Yet I was convinced that you could go through it. But let's not talk about it anymore. This was only one of a variety of roads. For three months, Don Juan systematically avoided talking about the guardian. I paid him four visits during these months. He involved me in running errands for him every time, and when I had performed the errands, he simply told me to go home. On April 24, 1969, the fourth time I was at his house, I finally confronted him after we had eaten dinner and were sitting next to his earthen stove. How did I fail, Don Juan? You think about everything. You thought about the Guardian, and thus you couldn't overcome it. First, you must live like a warrior. I think you understand that very well. I wanted to interject something in my defense, but he gestured with his hand to be quiet. Your life is fairly tight. You faithfully carried out everything I've told you to do, everything that my benefactor taught me in the first stage of learning I've passed on to you. The rule is right. The steps cannot be changed. You've done everything one has to do, and yet you don't see. But to those who see, like Gennaro, you appear as though you see. I rely on that, and I'm fooled. You always turn around and behave like an idiot who doesn't see, which of course is right for you. Don Juan's words distressed me profoundly. I don't know why, but I was close to tears. I began to talk about my childhood, and a wave of self-pity enveloped me. Don Juan stared at me for a brief moment and then moved his eyes away. It was a penetrating glance. Then he steered the conversation to my childhood. Why was your childhood sad, he asked with a serious expression. I told him that my childhood had not really been sad, but perhaps a bit difficult. Everybody feels that way, he said, looking at me again. I, too, was very unhappy and afraid when I was a child. To be an Indian is hard, very hard. But the memory of that time no longer has meaning for me beyond that it was hard. I had ceased to think about the hardship of my life even before I had learned to see. I was a skinny child, he went on, and I was always afraid. So was I, I said. What I remember the most is the terror and sadness that fell upon me when the Mexican soldiers killed my mother, he said softly, as if the memory was still painful. Perhaps it was better that her life was over then. I wanted to be killed with her because I was a child. But the soldiers picked me up and beat me. When I grabbed onto my mother's body, they hit my fingers with a horsewhip and broke them. I didn't feel any pain, but I couldn't grasp any more, and then they dragged me away. He stopped talking. His eyes were still closed, 
and I could detect a very slight tremor in his lips. A profound sadness began to overtake me. Images of my own childhood started to flood my mind. That was the time of the great Yaqui Wars. The Mexican soldiers came upon us unexpectedly while my mother was cooking some food. She was a helpless woman. They killed her for no reason at all. It doesn't make any difference that she died that way. Not really. And yet for me it does. I cannot tell myself why, though. It just does. I thought they had killed my father, too, but they hadn't. He was wounded. Later on, they put us in a train like cattle and closed the door. For days, they kept us there in the dark like animals. They kept us alive with bits of food they threw into the wagon from time to time. My father died of his wounds in that wagon. He became delirious with pain and fever and went on telling me that I had to survive. He kept on telling me that until the very last moment of his life. The people took care of me. They gave me food. An old woman curer fixed the broken bones of my hand. And as you can see, I live. Life has been neither good nor bad to me. Life has been hard. Life is hard. And for a child, it is sometimes horror itself. In an instant, my feelings of empathy for Don Juan gave way to a sensation of disgust with myself. I had actually taken notes as if Don Juan's life were merely a clinical case. I was on the verge of ripping up my notes when Don Juan poked my calf with his toe to attract my attention. He said he was seeing a light of violence around me and wondered whether I was going to start beating him. His laughter was a delightful break. He said that I was given to outbursts of violent behavior but that I was not really mean and that most of the time the violence was against myself. You're right, Don Juan, I said. Of course, he said, laughing. I promised my father that I would live to destroy his assassins. I carried that promise with me for years. Now the promise is changed. I'm no longer interested in destroying anybody. Today, I feel sad. Not because my mother and father died the way they did. I feel sad because they were Indians. They lived like Indians and died like Indians and never knew that they were before anything else. Men. I went back to visit Don Juan on May 30th, 1969, and bluntly told him that I wanted to take another crack at seeing. He shook his head negatively and laughed, and I felt compelled to protest. He told me I had to be patient and the time was not right, but I doggedly insisted I was ready. He did not seem annoyed with my nagging requests. He tried, nevertheless, to change the subject. I did not let go and asked him to advise me what to do in order to overcome my impatience. You must act like a warrior, he said. How? One learns to act like a warrior by acting, not by talking. You must completely forget the guardian before you can again embark on the quest of seeing, he said. How can anyone forget the guardian? A warrior has to use his will and his patience to forget. In fact, a warrior has only his will and his patience, and with them he builds anything he wants. But I'm not a warrior. You have started learning the ways of sorcerers. You have no more time for retreats or for regrets. You only have time to live like a warrior and work for patience and will, whether you like it or not. Well, how does a warrior work for them? Don Juan thought for a long time before answering. I think there's no way of talking about it, he finally said, especially about will. Will is something very special. It happens mysteriously. There's no real way of telling how one uses it, except that the results of using the will are astounding. 
Perhaps the first thing that one should do is to know that one can develop the will. A warrior knows that and proceeds to wait for it. Your mistake is not to know that you are waiting for your will. My benefactor told me that a warrior knows that he is waiting and knows what he is waiting for. In your case, you know that you're waiting. You've been here with me for years, yet you don't know what you are waiting for. It is very difficult, if not impossible, for the average man to know what he is waiting for. A warrior, however, has no problems. He knows that he is waiting for his will. Is will the control we may have over ourselves, I asked? You may say that it is a kind of control. Do you think I can exercise my will, for instance, by denying myself certain things? Such as asking questions, he interjected. He said it in such a mischievous tone that I had to stop writing to look at him. We both laughed. No, he said. Denying yourself is an indulgence, and I don't recommend anything of the kind. That is the reason why I let you ask all the questions you want. If I told you to stop asking questions, you might warp your will trying to do that. The indulgence of denying is by far the worst. It forces us to believe that we are doing great things, when in effect we are only fixed within ourselves. I've told you that when you talk, you only get confused, he said, and laughed. But at least now you know you are waiting for your will. You still don't know what it is or how it could happen to you. So watch carefully everything you do. The very thing that could help you develop your will is amidst all the little things you do. My benefactor said that when a man embarks on the paths of sorcery, he becomes aware in a gradual manner that ordinary life has been forever left behind, that knowledge is indeed a frightening affair, that the means of the ordinary world are no longer a buffer for him, and that he must adopt a new way of life if he is going to survive. The first thing he ought to do at that point is to want to become a warrior, a very important step and decision. The frightening nature of knowledge leaves one no alternative but to become a warrior. By the time knowledge becomes a frightening affair, the man also realizes that death is the irreplaceable partner that sits next to him on the mat. Every bit of knowledge that becomes power has death as its central force. Death lends the ultimate touch, and whatever is touched by death indeed becomes power. A man who follows the paths of sorcery is confronted with imminent annihilation every turn of the way, and unavoidably he becomes keenly aware of his death. Without the awareness of death, he would be only an ordinary man involved in ordinary acts. He would lack the necessary potency, the necessary concentration that transforms one's ordinary time on earth into magical power. Thus, to be a warrior, a man has to be, first of all, and rightfully so, keenly aware of his own death. But to be concerned with death would force any one of us to focus on the self, and that would be debilitating. So the next thing one needs to be a warrior is detachment. The idea of imminent death, instead of becoming an obsession, becomes an indifference. The sole idea of being detached from everything I know gives me the chills, I said. You must be joking. The thing which should give you the chills is not to have anything to look forward to, but a lifetime of doing that which you have always done. Think of the man who plants corn year after year until he's too old and tired to get up. So he lies around like an old dog. His thoughts and feelings, the best of him, ramble aimlessly to the only things he has ever done, to plant corn. For me, that is the most frightening waste there is. We are men, and our lot is to learn and to be hurled into inconceivable new worlds. Are there any new worlds for us really, I asked half in jest? 
We have exhausted nothing, you fool, he said imperatively. Seeing is for impeccable men. Temper your spirit now. Become a warrior. Learn to see. And then you'll know that there is no end to the new worlds for our vision. Don Juan did not make me leave after I had run his errands as he had been doing lately. He said I could stay, and the next day, June 28, 1969, just before noon, he told me I was going to smoke again. Am I going to try to see the Guardian again? No, that's out. This is something else. He took me to the mouth of a canyon at the bottom of the hills. It was about an hour's walk. We rested for a short while, and then he guided me through the thick desert underbrush to a waterhole. That is, to a spot he said was a waterhole. It was as dry as any other spot in the surrounding area. Sit in the middle of the waterhole, he ordered me. I obeyed and sat down. Are you going to sit here too, I asked. I saw him fixing a place to sit some twenty yards from the center of the waterhole against the rocks on the side of the mountain. He said he was going to watch me from there. I was sitting with my knees against my chest. He corrected my position and told me to sit with my left leg tucked under my seat and my right one bent with the knee in an upward position. My right arm had to be by my side with my fist resting on the ground while my left arm was crossed over my chest. He told me to face him and stay there, relaxed but not abandoned. He then took a sort of whitish cord from his pouch. It looked like a big loop. He looped it around his neck and stretched it with his left hand until it was taut. He plucked the tight string with his right hand. It made a dull, vibratory sound. He relaxed his grip and looked at me and told me that I had to yell a specific word if I began to feel that something was coming at me when he plucked the string. I asked what was supposed to come at me and he told me to shut up. He signaled me with his hand that he was going to commence. I had a moment of genuine apprehension. I wanted to inquire about the reason for our being there, but he did not give me time and began plucking the string. He did it various times at regular intervals of perhaps twenty seconds. I noticed that as he kept plucking the string, he augmented the tension. I could clearly see that his arms and neck were shivering under the stress. The sound became more clear, and I realized then that he added a peculiar yell every time he plucked the string. The combined sound of the tense string and the human voice produced a weird, unearthly reverberation. Don Juan relaxed his grip and looked at me. While he played, his back was turned to me and he was facing the southeast as I was. When he relaxed, he faced me. Don't look at me when I play, he said. Don't close your eyes, though, not for anything. Look at the ground in front of you and listen. He tensed the string again and began playing. I looked at the ground and concentrated on the sound he was making. I had never heard the sound before in my life. I became very frightened. The eerie reverberation filled the narrow canyon and began to echo. In fact, the sound Don Juan was making was coming back to me as an echo from all around the canyon walls. Don Juan must have also noticed that and increased the tension on his string. Although Don Juan had changed the pitch, the echo seemed to subside, and then it seemed to concentrate on one point toward the southeast. Don Juan reduced the tension of the string by degrees until I heard a final dull twang. He put the string inside his pouch and walked toward me. He helped me stand up. I noticed then that the muscles of my arms and legs were stiff like rocks. I was literally soaked in perspiration. I had no idea I had been perspiring so heavily. Drops of sweat ran into my eyes and made them burn. Don Juan practically dragged me out of the place. I tried to say something, but he put his hand over my mouth. Instead of leaving the canyon the way we had come in, Don Juan made a detour. We climbed the side of the mountain and ended up in some hills very far from the mouth of the canyon. We walked in dead silence to his house. It was already dark by the time we got there. I have the proper thing for you to do, Don Juan said to me as soon as I woke up the next morning. 
It will start it today. There isn't much time, you know. What was the string you played, Don Juan? A spirit catcher. Mine is a wild boar. When you get one, you will realize that it is alive and can teach you the different sounds it likes. With practice, you will get to know your spirit catcher so well that together you will make sounds full of power. Why did you take me to look for the spirit of the waterhole, Don Juan? You'll know that very soon. Around ten o'clock the next morning, Don Juan took his pipe out of its sheath, filled it with smoking mixture, then handed it to me and told me to carry it to the bank of the stream. Don Juan made me smoke twice the amount I had smoked during previous attempts. At a given moment, he leaned over and whispered in my right ear that he was going to teach me how to use the water in order to move. I tried to focus my gaze on the water, but its movement distracted me. My mind and my eyes began to wander onto other features of the immediate surroundings. Don Juan bobbed my head up and down and ordered me again to gaze only at the water and not to think at all. He said it was difficult to stare at the moving water and that one had to keep on trying. I tried three times, and every time I became distracted by something else. Don Juan very patiently shook my head every time. Finally, I noticed that my mind and my eyes were focusing on the water. In spite of its movement, I was becoming immersed in my view of its liquidness. The water became slightly different. It seemed to be heavier and uniformly grayish-green. I could notice the ripples it made as it moved. The ripples were extremely sharp. And then suddenly I had the sensation that I was not looking at a mass of moving water, but at a picture of water. What I had in front of my eyes was a frozen segment of the running water. The ripples were immobile. I could look at every one of them. Then they began to acquire a green phosphorescence, and a sort of green fog oozed out of them. The fog expanded in ripples, and as it moved, its greenness became more brilliant until it was a dazzling radiance that covered everything. Look at the water in front of you, I heard him saying. But don't let its sound carry you anywhere. If you let the sound of the water carry you, I may never be able to find you and bring you back. Now get into that green fog and listen to my voice. I heard and understood him with extraordinary clarity. I began looking at the water fixedly and had a very peculiar sensation of physical pleasure, an itch, an undefined happiness. For an instant, I saw the fizzling as a slow expansion of green matter. It was a silent explosion. The water burst into a brilliant green mist which expanded until it had enveloped me. I remained suspended in it until a very sharp, sustained, shrill noise shook everything. The fog seemed to congeal into the usual features of the water's surface. The shrill noise was Don Juan yelling, Hey! close to my ear. He told me to pay attention to his voice and go back into the fog and wait there until he called me. I said, okay, in English, and heard the cackling noise of his laughter. Please don't talk, he said. Don't give me any more okays. I could hear him very well. The sound of his voice was melodious and above all friendly. I knew that without thinking. It was a conviction that struck me and then passed. Don Juan's voice ordered me to focus all my attention on the fog, but not abandon myself to it. He said repeatedly that a warrior did not abandon himself to anything, not even to his death. I became immersed in the mist again and noticed that it was not fog at all, or at least it was not what I conceived fog to be like. The fog-like phenomenon was composed of tiny bubbles, round objects that came into my field of vision and moved out of it with a quality. I watched their movement for a while, then a loud, distant noise jolted my attention and I lost my capacity to focus and could no longer perceive the tiny bubbles. All I was aware of then was a green, amorphous, fog-like glow. I heard the loud noise again, and the jolt it gave dispelled the fog at once, and I found myself looking at the water of the irrigation ditch. Then I heard it again, much closer, 
It was Don Juan's voice. He was telling me to pay attention to him because his voice was my only guide. He ordered me to look at the bank of the stream and at the vegetation directly in front of me. After a few moments, Don Juan ordered me to return to the fog and asked me again to pay attention to his voice because he was going to guide me so I could learn how to move. He said that once I saw the bubbles, I should board one of them and let it carry me. I obeyed him and was at once surrounded by the green mist, and then I saw the tiny bubbles. Don Juan's voice kept on urging me to follow one of them and mount it. I wondered how I was supposed to do that, and automatically I voiced the word, How? I felt that the word was very deep inside me, and as it came out, it carried me to the surface. The word was like a buoy that emerged out of my depth. I heard myself saying, How? And I sounded like a dog howling. Don Juan howled back, also like a dog. And then he made some coyote sounds and laughed. I thought it was very funny, and I actually laughed. Don Juan told me very calmly to let myself become affixed to a bubble by following it. Go back again, he said. Go into the fog. Into the fog. I went back and noticed that the movement of the bubbles had slowed down, and they had become as large as basketballs. I viewed them as if I were looking through a window. That is, the frame of the window did not allow me to follow them, but only permitted me to view them coming into and going out of my field of perception. When I ceased to view them as bubbles, however, I was capable of following them. In the act of following them, I became affixed to one of them, and I floated with it. I truly felt I was moving. In fact, I was the bubble, or that thing which resembled a bubble. Then I heard the shrill sound of Don Juan's voice. It jolted me, and I lost my feeling of being it. The sound was extremely frightening. It was a remote voice, very metallic, as if he were talking through a loudspeaker. I made out some of the words. Look at the banks, he said. I saw a very large body of water. The water was rushing. I could hear the noise it made. Look at the banks. Don Juan ordered me again. I saw a concrete wall. The sound of the water became terribly loud. The sound engulfed me. Then it ceased instantaneously, as if it had been cut off. I had the sensation of blackness, of sleep. I became aware that I was immersed in the irrigation ditch. Don Juan was splashing water in my face as he hummed. Then he submerged me in the ditch. He pulled my head up over the surface and let me rest it on the bank as he held me by the back of my shirt collar. Don Juan told me to come out. I noticed an urgency in his voice. I'm green, I said. Cut it out, he said imperatively. You have no time. Get out of there. The water is about to trap you. Get out of it. Out. Out. I panicked and jumped out. This time you must tell me everything that took place, he said matter-of-factly, as soon as we sat facing each other inside his room. He was not interested in the sequence of my experience. He wanted to know only what I had encountered when he told me to look at the bank. He was interested in details. I described the wall I had seen. You moved very fast, he said. As fast as a man who knows how to perform this technique, I had a hard time keeping up with you. You mean, Don Juan, that I really traveled in the water? You did, and very far, too. How far? You wouldn't believe it. I tried to coax him into telling me, but he dropped the subject and said he had to leave for a while. Don Juan returned the next day, late in the afternoon. In the meantime, I had written down everything I could recollect about my perceptions. When Don Juan arrived at his house in the late afternoon, I accosted him and insisted on reading my account to him. He refused to listen and made me sit down. He sat facing me. He was not smiling. He seemed to be thinking, judging by the penetrating look in his eyes, which were fixed above the horizon. I think you must be aware by now, he said in a tone that was suddenly very severe, that everything is mortally dangerous. 
The water is as deadly as the Guardian. If you don't watch out, the water will trap you. It nearly did that yesterday. But in order to be trapped, a man has to be willing. There's your trouble. You're willing to abandon yourself. I did not know what he was talking about. His attack on me had been so sudden that I was disoriented. I raised the point that it was humanly impossible to be controlled at all times. He maintained that for a warrior there was nothing out of control. I brought up the idea of accidents and said that what happened to me at the water canal could certainly be classed as an accident, since I neither meant it nor was I aware of my improper behavior. I talked about different people who had misfortunes that could be explained as accidents. All I can say to you, Don Juan said, is that a warrior is never available. Never is he standing on the road waiting to be clobbered. Thus he cuts to a minimum his chances of the unforeseen. What you call accidents are most of the time very easy to avoid, except for fools who are living helter-skelter. It is not possible to live strategically all the time, I said. Imagine that someone is waiting for you with a powerful rifle with a telescopic sight. He could spot you accurately 500 yards away. What would you do? Don Juan looked at me with an air of disbelief and then broke into laughter. What would you do, I urged him. If someone is waiting for me with a rifle with a telescopic sight, he said, obviously mocking me. If someone is hiding out of sight waiting for you, you won't have a chance. You can't stop a bullet. No, I can't, but I still don't understand your point. My point is that all your strategy cannot be of any help in a situation like that. Oh, but it can. If someone is waiting for me with a powerful rifle with a telescopic sight, I simply will not come around. My next attempt at seeing took place on September 3, 1969. Don Juan made me smoke two bowls of the mixture. I remember that when my body was thoroughly numb, Don Juan held me by my right armpit and made me walk into the thick desert chaparral that grows for miles around his house. I cannot recollect what I or Don Juan did after we entered the brush, nor can I recall how long we walked. At a certain moment, I found I was sitting on top of a small hill. Then, very faintly, I heard Don Juan's voice talking to me. Now you must look at me, he said as he turned my head to face him. He repeated the statement three or four times. I looked and detected right away the same glowing effect I had perceived twice before while looking at his face. It was a mesmerizing movement, an undulatory shift of light within contained areas. There were no definite boundaries to those areas, and yet the waving light never spilled over but moved within invisible limits. I scanned the glowing object in front of me, and immediately it started to lose its glow, and the familiar features of Don Juan's face emerged, or rather became superimposed on the fading glow. I must have then focused my gaze again. Don Juan's features faded, and the glow intensified. I had placed my attention on an area which must have been his left eye. I noticed that there the movement of the glow was not contained. I detected something perhaps resembling explosions of sparks. The explosions were rhythmical and actually sent out something like particles of light that flew out with apparent force toward me and then retreated as if they were rubber fibers. Don Juan must have turned my head around. Suddenly I found myself looking at a plowed field. Now look ahead, I heard Don Juan saying. In front of me, perhaps 200 yards away, was a large, long hill. Don Juan spoke to me again. It took me a moment to understand what he was saying. Do you see a man in that field? He kept on asking. Don Juan took my head in his hands from behind. I could see his fingers over my eyebrows and on my cheeks and made me pan over the field, moving my head slowly from right to left and then in the opposite direction. Watch every detail. Your life may depend on it, I heard him saying over and over. He made me pan four times over the 180-degree visual horizon in front of me. 
At one moment, when he had moved my head to face the extreme left, I thought I detected something moving in the field. I had a brief perception of movement with the corner of my right eye. He began to shift my head back to my right, and I was capable of focusing my gaze on the plowed field. I saw a man walking alongside the furrows. Don Juan must have noticed that I had seen the man. He asked me repeatedly if the man was looking at me or if he was coming toward me. I wanted to tell him that the man was walking away and that his back was turned to me, but I could only say no. Don Juan said that if the man turned and came to me, I should yell and he would turn my head away in order to protect me. I had no sense of fear or apprehension or involvement. I coldly watched the scene. The man stopped walking at the middle of the field. He stood with his right foot on a ledge of a large round boulder as if he were tying his sandal. Then he straightened up, pulled a string from his bag and wrapped it around his left hand. He turned his back to me and facing the top of the hill began scanning the area in front of him. I thought he was scanning because of the way he moved his head, which he kept turning slowly to his right. I saw him in profile and then he began to turn his whole body toward me until he was looking at me. He actually jerked his head or moved it in such a way that I knew beyond a doubt that he had seen me. He extended his left arm in front of him, pointing to the ground and holding his arm in that position he began to walk toward me. He's coming, I yelled without any difficulty. Don Juan must have turned my head around, for next I was looking at the chaparral. I saw Don Juan moving to a spot perhaps twenty yards away. He walked with such incredible speed and agility that I could hardly believe it was Don Juan. He turned around and faced me and ordered me to gaze at him. His face was glowing. It looked like a blotch of light. He said something to me. I struggled to understand and lost my view of the glow. And then I saw Don Juan as I see him in everyday life. He was a couple of feet away from me. He sat down facing me. I perceived once more the effect of pulsating explosions of light emanating from an area which must have been his left eye. I noticed that perceiving was more than sighting. It was feeling. The pool of dark liquid light had an extraordinary depth. It was friendly, kind. The glow had a very lovely and delicate way of touching me, of soothing me, which gave me a sensation of exquisiteness. Don Juan must have turned me around once more, for I was again looking at the plowed field. I heard him telling me to watch the man. The man was standing by the boulder looking at me. I could not distinguish his features. His hat covered most of his face. After a moment, he tucked his bag under his right arm and began to walk away toward my right. He walked almost to the end of the plowed area, changing direction and took a few steps toward the gully. Then I lost control of my focusing and he vanished, and so did the total scenery. The image of the desert shrubs became superimposed on it. I do not recollect how I returned to Don Juan's house, nor do I remember what he did to bring me back. When I woke up, I was lying on my straw mat in Don Juan's room. I looked at my watch. It was 11 p.m. I went back to sleep, and by one o'clock the next afternoon, I thought I was myself again. I wandered to the back and found Don Juan sitting by the irrigation ditch. When he saw me approaching, he made frantic gestures to make me stop and go back into the house. Run inside, he yelled. I ran into the house, and he joined me a while later. Don't ever come after me, he said. If you want to see me, wait for me here. I apologized. He told me not to waste myself in silly apologies which did not have the power to cancel my acts. He said that he had had a very difficult time bringing me back and that he had been interceding for me at the water. We have to take a chance now and wash you in the water, he said. I assured him I felt fine. He gazed into my eyes for a long time. Come with me, he said. I'm going to put you in the water. I'm fine, I said. Look, I'm taking notes. He pulled me up from my mat with considerable force. Don't indulge, he said. 
In no time at all, you will fall asleep again. Maybe I won't be able to wake you up this time. We ran to the back of his house. Before we reached the water, he told me in a most dramatic tone to shut my eyes tight and not to open them until he said to. He told me that if I gazed at the water, even for an instant, I might die. I kept my eyes shut as he went on submerging and pulling me out of the water for hours. The change I experienced was remarkable. Whatever was wrong with me before I entered the water was so subtle that I did not really notice it until I compared it with the feeling of well-being and alertness I had while Don Juan kept me in the irrigation canal. Water got into my nose and I began to sneeze. Don Juan pulled me out and led me with my eyes still closed into the house. He made me change my clothes and then guided me into his room, had me sit down on my mat, arrange the direction of my body, and then told me to open my eyes. I opened them and what I saw caused me to jump back and grab onto his leg. I experienced a tremendously confusing moment. Don Juan wrapped me with his knuckles on the very top of my head. It was a quick blow which was not hard or painful, but somehow shocking. What is the matter with you? What did you see? he asked. Upon opening my eyes, I had seen the same scene I had watched before. I had seen the same man. This time, however, he was almost touching me. I saw his face. There was an air of familiarity about it. I almost knew who he was. The scene vanished when Don Juan hit me on the head. I looked up at Don Juan. He had his hand ready to hit me again. He laughed and asked if I would like to get another blow. I let go of his leg and relaxed on my mat. He ordered me to look straight ahead and not to turn around for any reason in the direction of the water at the back of his house. I then noticed for the first time that it was pitch black in the room. For a moment I was not sure whether I had my eyes open. I touched them with my hands to make sure. I called Don Juan loudly and told him something was wrong with my eyes I could not see at all, while a moment before I had seen him ready to hit me. I heard his laughter over my head to my right, and then he lit his kerosene lantern. My eyes adapted to the light in a matter of seconds. Everything was as it always had been. This was the first time I did not believe in the final reality of my perception. I had been edging toward that feeling, and I had perhaps intellectualized it at various times, but never had I been at the brink of a serious doubt. This time, however, I did not believe the room was real. I complained that I did not feel well and told him what I had seen. He laughed at me, saying that to succumb to fright was a miserable indulgence. You're frightened without being afraid, he said. You saw the ally staring at you. Big deal. Wait until you've seen him face to face before you shit in your pants. He was interested in the scene of the plowed field and in every detail I could remember about the man. That ally was beckoning you, he said. I made you move your head when he came to you, not because he was endangering you, but because it is better to wait. You're not in a hurry. A warrior is never idle and never in a hurry. What was the meaning of the acts he performed? By looking at you, he meant he welcomes you. He showed you that you need a spirit catcher and a pouch, but not from this area. His bag was from another part of the country. The rest of the scene was meant to help you locate the exact place to find him. I know now where the place is. I'll take you there very soon. Don Juan dissuaded me from going back to Los Angeles the next morning. Apparently, he thought I still had not totally recovered. He insisted that I sit inside his room facing the southeast in order to preserve my strength. He sat to my left, handed me my notebook, and said that this time I had him pinned down. He not only had to stay with me, he also had to talk to me. I really did not want to talk at all. I'd begun to feel anxious and restless. Don Juan apparently found the situation utterly ludicrous. He laughed till the tears came. Don't tell me that at a time when you should talk, you're not going to find anything to say, he said. 
his eyes shining with a mischievous glint. You want to know what your death may be like, he asked me with a childlike delight in his face. I found his mischievous pleasure in teasing me rather comforting. It almost took the edge off my apprehension. Okay, tell me, I said, and my voice cracked. He had a formidable explosion of laughter. He held his stomach and rolled on his side and mockingly repeated, Okay, tell me, with a crack in his voice. You drive a great deal, he went on, saying. So you may find yourself at a given moment behind the wheel again. It will be a very fast sensation that won't give you time to think. Suddenly, let's say, you would find yourself driving as you have done thousands of times. But before you could wonder about yourself, you would notice a strange formation in front of your windshield. If you look closer, you'd realize that it is a cloud that looks like a shiny whorl. It would resemble, let's say, a face right in the middle of the sky in front of you. As you watched it, you would see it moving backward until it was only a brilliant point in the distance. And then you would notice that it began moving toward you again. It would pick up speed, and in a blink of an eye, it would smash against the windshield of your car. You're strong. I'm sure it would take death a couple of whams to get you. By then you would know where you were and what was happening to you. The face would recede again to a position on the horizon, would pick up speed and smash against you. The face would enter inside you, and then you'd know. It was the Allies' face all the time, or it was me talking, or you writing. Death was nothing all the time, nothing. It was a little dot lost in the sheets of your notebook. And yet would enter inside you with an uncontrollable force and would make you expand. It would make you flat and extend you over the sky and the earth and beyond and you would be like a fog of tiny crystals moving, moving away. I was very taken by his description of my death. I had expected to hear something so different I could not say anything for a long time. Death enters through the belly, he continued, right through the gap of the will. That area is the most important and sensitive part of a man. It is the area of the will and also the area through which all of us die. I know it because my ally has guided me to that stage. A sorcerer tunes his will by letting his death overtake him. And when he is flat and begins to expand, his impeccable will takes over and assembles the fog into one person again. Don Juan made a strange gesture. He opened his hands like two fans lifted them to the level of his elbows, turned them until his thumbs were touching his sides, and then brought them slowly together at the center of his body, over his navel. He kept them there for a moment. His arms shivered with the strain. Then he brought them up until the tips of his middle fingers touched his forehead, and then pulled them down in the same position to the center of his body. It was a formidable gesture. Don Juan had performed it with such force and beauty that I was spellbound. Later on, he wanted me to drive him to the nearby town. I mentioned that driving would be a welcome change for me because I was still shaky. The idea that a sorcerer actually played with his death was quite gruesome to me. To be a sorcerer is a terrible burden, he said in a reassuring tone. I've told you that it is much better to learn to see. A man who sees is everything. In comparison, the sorcerer is a sad fellow. What is sorcery, Don Juan? He looked at me for a long time as he shook his head almost imperceptibly. Sorcery is to apply one's will to a key joint, he said. Sorcery is interference. A sorcerer searches and finds the key joint of anything he wants to affect, and then he applies his will to it.
A sorcerer doesn't have to see to be a sorcerer. All he has to know is how to use his will. I asked him to explain what he meant by a key joint. He thought for a while, and then he said that he knew what my car was. It's obviously a machine, I said. I mean your car is the spark plugs. That's its key joint for me. I can apply my will to it, and your car won't work. Don Juan got into my car and sat down. He beckoned me to do likewise as he made himself comfortable on the seat. Turn on your car now, Don Juan said. I turned on the starter and automatically stepped on the gas pedal. The starter began to grind without igniting the engine. Don Juan's laughter was a soft, rhythmical cackle. I tried it again and again. I spent perhaps ten minutes grinding the starter of my car. Don Juan cackled all that time. Then I gave up and sat there with a heavy head. I had the certainty Don Juan had only mesmerized me with his laughter and made me believe I could not start my car. With the corner of my eye, I saw him looking curiously at me as I ground the motor and pumped the gas furiously. Don Juan patted me gently and said that fury would make me solid, and perhaps I would not need to be washed in the water again. The more furious I could get, the quicker I could recover from my encounter with the ally. Don't be embarrassed, I heard Don Juan saying. Kick the car. His natural everyday laughter exploded, and I felt ridiculous and laughed sheepishly. After a while, Don Juan said he had released the car. It started. September 28, 1969. There was something eerie about Don Juan's house. For a moment, I thought he was hiding somewhere around the place to scare me. I called out to him and then gathered enough nerve to walk inside. Don Juan was not there. I put the two bags of groceries I had brought on a pile of firewood and sat down to wait for him as I had done dozens of times before. But for the first time in my years of associating with Don Juan, I was afraid to stay alone in his house. I felt a presence, as if someone invisible was there with me. I remembered then that years before I had had the same vague feeling that something unknown was prowling around me when I was alone. I jumped to my feet and ran out of the house. I had come to see Don Juan to tell him that the cumulative effect of the task of seeing was taking its toll on me. I'd begun to feel uneasy, vaguely apprehensive without any overt reason, tired without being fatigued. Then my reaction at being alone in Don Juan's house brought back the total memory of how my fear had built up in the past. The fear traced back to years before when Don Juan had forced a very strange confrontation between a sorceress, a woman he called La Catalina, and me. It began on November 23, 1961, when I found him in his house with a dislocated ankle. He explained that he had an enemy, a sorceress who could turn into a blackbird and who had attempted to kill him. I came back to Don Juan's house hours later in the early afternoon. He was apparently waiting for me. He came up to me as I got out of my car and examined me with curious eyes, walking around me a couple of times. Why the nervousness, he asked, before I had time to say anything. I explained that something had scared me off that morning and that I had begun to feel something prowling around me as in the past. Don Juan sat down and seemed to be engulfed in thoughts. His face had an unusually serious expression. He seemed to be tired. I sat by him and arranged my notes. You forget too easily, he said. The world is indeed full of frightening things, and we are helpless creatures surrounded by forces that are inexplicable and unbending. The average man, in ignorance, believes that those forces can be explained or changed. He doesn't really know how to do that, but he expects that the actions of mankind will explain them or change them sooner or later. The sorcerer, on the other hand, does not think of explaining or changing them. Instead, he learns to use such forces by redirecting himself 
and adapting to their direction. A sorcerer, by opening himself to knowledge, falls prey to such forces and has only one means of balancing himself, his will. Thus he must feel and act like a warrior. I will repeat this once more. Only as a warrior can one survive the path of knowledge. What helps a sorcerer live a better life is the strength of being a warrior. This brings us to the last point you must know about a warrior, he said. A warrior selects the items that make his world. Act like a warrior and select the items of your world. You cannot surround yourself with things helter-skelter any longer. I tell you this in a most serious vein. Now, for the first time, you're not safe in your old way of life. Years ago, I told you that in his day-to-day -day life, a warrior chooses to follow the path with heart. It is the consistent choice of the path with heart which makes a warrior different from the average man. He knows that a path has a heart when he is one with it, when he experiences a great peace and pleasure traversing its length. The things a warrior selects to make his shields are the items of a path with heart. This is your turning point. Now you must surround yourself with the items of a path with heart, and you must refuse the rest, or you will perish in the next encounter. I may add that you don't need to ask for the encounter any longer. An ally can now come to you in your sleep, while you are talking to your friends, while you are writing. For years I have truly tried to live in accordance with your teachings, I said. Obviously I have not done well. How can I do better now? You think and talk too much. You must stop talking to yourself. What do you mean? You talk to yourself too much. You're not unique at that. Every one of us does that. We carry on an internal talk. Think about it. Whenever you are alone, what do you do? I talk to myself. What do you talk to yourself about? I don't know anything, I suppose. I'll tell you what we talk to ourselves about. We talk about our world. In fact, we maintain our world with our internal talk. How do we do that? Whenever we finish talking to ourselves, the world is always as it should be. We renew it. We kindle it with life. We uphold it with our internal talk. Not only that, but we also choose our paths as we talk to ourselves. Thus we repeat the same choices over and over until the day we die, because we keep on repeating the same internal talk over and over until the day we die. The warrior is aware of this and strives to stop his talking. This is the last point you have to know if you want to live like a warrior. How can I stop talking to myself? First of all, you must use your ears to take some of the burden from your eyes. We have been using our eyes to judge the world since the time we were born. We talk to others and to ourselves mainly about what we see. A warrior is aware of that and listens to the world. He listens to the sounds of the world. The world is such and such or so and so only because we tell ourselves that that is the way it is. If we stop telling ourselves that the world is so and so, the world will stop being so and so. The world is incomprehensible. We won't ever understand it. We won't ever unravel its secrets. Thus, we must treat it as it is, a sheer mystery. An average man doesn't do this, though. The world is never a mystery for him, and when he arrives at old age, he is convinced he has nothing more to live for. An old man has not exhausted the world. He has only exhausted what people do. But in his stupid confusion, he believes that the world has no more mysteries for him. What a wretched price to pay for our shields. 
A warrior is aware of this confusion and learns to treat things properly. The things that people do cannot under any conditions be more important than the world. And thus a warrior treats the world as an endless mystery and what people do as an endless folly. I began the exercise of listening to the sounds of the world and kept at it for two months, as Don Juan had specified. It was excruciating at first to listen and not look, but even more excruciating was not to talk to myself. By the end of the two months, I was capable of shutting off my internal dialogue for short periods of time, and I was also capable of paying attention to sounds. I arrived at Don Juan's house at 9 a.m. on November 10, 1969. We should start that trip right now, he said upon my arrival at his house. I rested for an hour, and then we drove toward the low slopes of the mountains to the east. We left my car in the care of one of his friends who lived in that area while we hiked into the mountains. In the early afternoon, we stopped in a small gully at the bottom of some lush green hills. Behind the hills, toward the east, the high mountains were silhouetted against a cloudy sky. You can think, you can write about what we say or about what you perceive. But nothing about where we are, he said. We rested for a while, and then he took a bundle from inside his shirt. He untied it and showed me his pipe. He filled its bowl with smoking mixture, lighted a match, and kindled a small dry twig, placed the burning twig inside the bowl, and told me to smoke. When I had finished smoking, he said that we were there so I could find out the kind of game I was supposed to hunt. He carefully repeated three or four times that the most important aspect of my endeavor was to find some holes... He emphasized the word holes and said that inside them a sorcerer could find all sorts of messages and directions. I wanted to ask what kind of holes they were. Don Juan seemed to have guessed my question and said that they were impossible to describe and were in the realm of seeing. He repeated at various times that I should focus all my attention on listening to sounds and do my best to find the holes between the sounds. I began to listen, and I could distinguish the whistling of birds, the wind rustling the leaves, the buzzing of insects. As I placed my individual attention on those sounds, I could actually make out four different types of bird whistlings. I could distinguish the speeds of the wind in terms of slow or fast. I could also hear the different rustlings of three types of leaves. The buzzings of insects were dazzling. The wind came high above the trees, and then it dropped into the valley where we were. Upon dropping, it touched the leaves of the tall trees first. They made a peculiar sound, which I fancied to be a sort of rich, raspy, lush sound. I could not count all the whistles of birds or buzzings of insects, yet I was convinced I was listening to each separate sound as it was produced. Together they created a most extraordinary order. I cannot call it any other thing but order. It was an order of sounds that had a pattern. That is, every sound happened in sequence. Then I heard a unique, prolonged wail. It made me shiver. Every other noise ceased for an instant, and the valley was dead still as the reverberations of the whale reached the valley's outer limits. Then the noises began again. I picked up their pattern immediately. After a moment of attentive listening, I thought I understood Don Juan's recommendation to watch for the holes between the sounds. The pattern of noises had spaces in between sounds. I heard again the piercing wail of Don Juan's spirit catcher. It did not jolt me, but the sounds again ceased for an instant, and I perceived such a cessation as a hole, a very large hole. At that precise moment, I shifted my attention from hearing to looking. I was looking at a cluster of low hills with lush green vegetation. The silhouette of the hills was arranged in such a way that from the place where I was looking, there seemed to be a hole on the side of one of the hills. It was a space in between two hills, and through it I could see the deep, dark, gray hue of the mountains in the distance. 
For a moment, I did not know what it was. It was as if the hole I was looking at was the hole in the sound. Then the noises began again, but the visual image of the huge hole remained. A short while later, I became even more keenly aware of the pattern of sounds and their order and the arrangement of their pauses. My mind was capable of distinguishing and discriminating among an enormous number of individual sounds. I could actually keep track of all the sounds. Thus, each pause between sounds was a definite whole. At a given moment, the pauses became crystallized in my mind and formed a sort of solid grid, a structure. I was not seeing or hearing it. I was feeling it with some unknown part of myself. Don Juan played his string once again. The sound ceased as they had done before, creating a huge hole in the sound structure. This time, however, that big pause blended with the hole in the hills I was looking at. They became superimposed on each other. There was something of a lure about it. It dominated my field of perception, and every single sound pattern which coincided with a feature of the environment was hinged on that hole. I heard once more the eerie wail of Don Juan's spirit catcher. All other sounds stopped. The two large holes seemed to light up, and next I was looking again at the plowed field. The ally was standing there as I had seen him before. The light of the total scene became very clear. I could see him plainly, as if he were fifty yards away. I could not see his face, his hat covered it. Then he began to come toward me, lifting up his head slowly as he walked. I could almost see his face, and that terrified me. I knew I had to stop him without delay. I had a strange surge in my body. I felt an outflow of power. I wanted to move my head to the side to stop the vision, but I could not do it. At that crucial instant, a thought came to my mind. I knew what Don Juan meant when he spoke of the items of a path with heart being the shields. There was something I wanted to do in my life, something very consuming and intriguing, something that filled me with great peace and joy. I knew the ally could not overcome me. I moved my head away without any trouble before I could see his entire face. I began hearing all the other sounds. They suddenly became very loud and shrill, as if they were actually angry with me. They lost their patterns and turned into an amorphous conglomerate of sharp, painful shrieks. Don Juan helped me walk to a very small stream. The pressure in my ears subsided very rapidly, and it took only a few minutes to wash me. Don Juan looked at me, shook his head in approval, and said I had made myself solid in no time at all. He wanted to know all the details of my vision. He said that the holes in the sounds were used by sorcerers to find out specific things. What is important is that you saw the ally. That is your game. I've told you that we were going to hunt for something. You will have to go to him. We arrived in the same valley in the late afternoon of December 15, 1969. Don Juan mentioned repeatedly as we moved through the shrubs that directions or points of orientation were of crucial importance in the endeavor I was going to undertake. You must determine the right direction immediately upon arriving at the top of a hill, Don Juan said. As soon as you are on the top, face that direction. He pointed to the southeast. That is your good direction, and you should always face it, especially when you're in trouble. Remember that. We stopped at the bottom of the hills where I had perceived the hole. He pointed at a specific place where I had to sit down. He sat next to me and in a very quiet voice gave me detailed instructions. He said that as soon as I reached the hilltop, I had to extend my right arm in front of me with the palm of my hand down and my fingers stretched like a fan, except the thumb, which had to be tucked against the palm. The spot over which the palm of your hand feels warm as you sweep your arm is the place where you must sit, and it is also the direction in which you must look, he said. 
If you are facing the south or the north, you have to make up your mind whether you feel strong enough to stay. If you have doubts about yourself, get up and leave. There's no need to stay if you're not confident. If you decide to stick around, clean an area big enough to build a fire about five feet away from your first point. The fire must be in a straight line in the direction you are looking. The area where you build the fire is your second point. Sit on your first point and look at the fire. Sooner or later, the spirit will come and you will see it. If your hand gets warm on any place toward the west, drop everything and run. Run downhill toward the flat area, and no matter what you hear or feel behind you, don't turn around. As soon as you get to the flat area, no matter how frightened you are, don't keep on running. Drop to the ground, take off your jacket, bunch it around your navel and curl up like a ball, tucking your knees against your stomach. You must also cover your eyes with your hands and your arms have to remain tight against your thighs. You must stay in that position until morning. If you follow these simple steps, no harm will ever come to you. In case you cannot get to the flat area in time, drop to the ground right where you are. You will have a horrid time there. You will be harassed, but if you keep calm and don't move or look, you'll come out of it without a single scratch. Now, if your hand does not get warm at all, face the east again and run in an easterly direction until you're out of breath. Stop there and repeat the same maneuvers. You must keep on running toward the east, repeating these movements until your hand gets warm. After giving me these instructions, he made me repeat them until I had memorized them. Then we sat in silence for a long time. It was getting dark when Don Juan got up and without a word began climbing the hill. I followed him. At the top of the hill, I performed all the movements he had prescribed. Don Juan stood by a short distance away and kept a sharp look on me. I was very careful and deliberately slow. I tried to feel any perceivable change of temperature, but I could not detect whether or not the palm of my hand became warm. By that time, it was fairly dark, yet I was still capable of running in an easterly direction without stumbling on the shrubs. I stopped running when I was out of breath, which was not too far from my point of departure. I was extremely tired and tense. My forearms ached, and so did my calves. I repeated there all the required motions and again had the same negative results. I ran in the dark two more times, and then while I was sweeping my arm for the third time, my hand became warm over a point toward the east. It was such a definite change of temperature that it startled me. I sat down and waited for Don Juan. I told him I had detected a change in temperature in my hand. He told me to proceed, and I picked all the dry brush I could find and started a fire. He sat to my left, a couple of feet away. The fire drew strange dancing silhouettes. At times, the flames became iridescent. They grew bluish and then brilliantly white. I explained that unusual play of colors by assuming that it was produced by some chemical property of the specific dry twigs and branches I had collected. Another very unusual feature of the fire was the sparks. The new twigs I kept adding created extremely big sparks. I thought they were like tennis balls that seemed to explode in midair. At a moment when I was about to lean over and pick up a twig, something like a moth or a spot in my retina swept across from right to left between myself and the fire. I immediately recoiled. I looked at Don Juan and he signaled me with a movement of his chin to look back at the flames. A moment later, the same shadow swept across in the opposite direction. Don Juan got up hurriedly and began piling loose dirt on top of the burning twigs until he had completely extinguished the flames. He executed the maneuver of putting out the fire with tremendous speed. By the time I moved to help him, he had finished. He stomped on the dirt on top of the smoldering twigs, and then he nearly dragged me downhill and out of the valley. He walked very fast, without turning his head back, and did not allow me to talk at all. 
When we got to my car hours later, I asked him what was the thing I had seen. He shook his head imperatively, and we drove in complete silence. He went directly inside when we arrived at his house in the early morning, and he again hushed me up when I tried to talk. Don Juan was sitting outside behind his house. He seemed to have been waiting for me to wake up, because he started talking as I came out of the house. He said that the shadow I had seen the night before was a spirit, a force that belonged to the particular place where I had seen it. He spoke of that specific being as a useless one. It only exists there, he said. It has no secrets of power, so there was no point in remaining there. You would have seen only a fast, passing shadow going back and forth all night. Two days later, on December 17, 1969, Don Juan said in a very casual tone that I knew all the details and necessary techniques in order to go to the hills by myself. He urged me to proceed alone and affirmed that his company would only hinder me. I was ready to leave when he seemed to change his mind. You're not strong enough, he said. I'll go with you to the bottom of the hills. When we were at the small valley where I had seen the ally, he examined from a distance the formation in the terrain that I had called a hole in the hills and said that we had to go still further south into the distant mountains. It was late afternoon when we stopped. We sat down on some rocks. I was tired and hungry. All I had eaten during the day was some tortillas and water. Don Juan stood up all of a sudden, looked at the sky, and told me in a commanding tone to take off in the direction that was the best for me and to be sure I could remember the spot where we were at the moment so I could return there whenever I was through. He said in a reassuring tone that he would be waiting for me if it took forever. I walked away toward the southeast, turning around a couple of times to look at Don Juan. He was walking very slowly in the opposite direction. I climbed to the top of a large hill and looked at Don Juan once again. He was a good two hundred yards away. He did not turn to look at me. I ran downhill into a small bowl-like depression between the hills and I suddenly found myself alone. I sat down for a moment and began to wonder what I was doing there. I felt ludicrous looking for a spirit catcher. I ran back up to the top of the hill to have a better view of Don Juan, but I could not see him anywhere. I ran downhill in the direction I had last seen him. I wanted to call off the whole affair and go home. I felt quite stupid and tired. Don Juan, I yelled over and over. He was nowhere in sight. I again ran to the top of another steep hill. I could not see him from there either. I ran quite away looking for him, but he had disappeared. I retraced my steps and went back to the original place where he had left me. I had the absurd certainty I was going to find him sitting there laughing at my inconsistencies. What in the hell have I gotten into, I said loudly. I knew then that there was no way to stop whatever I was doing there. I really did not know how to go back to my car. Don Juan had said that I always insisted on starting at a point I called the beginning, when in effect the beginning did not exist. And there, in the middle of those mountains, I felt I understood what he meant. It was as if the point of departure had always been myself. It was as if Don Juan had never really been there. And when I looked for him, he became what he really was, a fleeting image that vanished over a hill. I heard the soft rustle of leaves, and a strange fragrance enveloped me. I felt the wind as a pressure on my ears, like a shy buzzing. The sun was about to reach some compact clouds over the horizon that looked like a solidly tinted orange band when it disappeared behind a heavy blanket of lower clouds. It appeared again a moment later like a crimson ball floating in the mist. I lay down on my back. The world around me was so still, so serene, and at the same time so alien I felt overwhelmed. I did not want to weep, but tears rolled down easily. 
I remained in that position for hours. Finally, it got fairly dark. I felt better. In fact, I felt almost happy. For me, the semi-darkness was much more nurturing and protective than the hard daylight. I stood up, climbed to the top of a small hill, and began repeating the motions Don Juan had taught me. I ran toward the east seven times, and then I noticed a change of temperature on my hand. I built a fire and set a careful watch as Don Juan had recommended, observing every detail. Hours went by and I began to feel very tired and cold. I had gathered quite a pile of dry twigs. I fed the fire and moved closer to it. The vigil was so strenuous and so intense that it exhausted me. I began to nod. I was awakened suddenly by a loud crack. It appeared that the noise, whatever it was, had come from just above my left ear since I was lying on my right side. I sat up, fully awake. My left ear buzzed and was deafened by the proximity and force of the sound. I must have been asleep for only a short while, judging by the amount of dry twigs which were still burning in the fire. I did not hear any other noises, but I remained alert and kept on feeding the fire. The thought crossed my mind that perhaps what woke me up was a gunshot. Perhaps someone was around watching me, taking shots at me. The thought became very anguishing and created an avalanche of rational fears. I experienced a moment of terrible concern for my safety. I felt the tension in my shoulders and my neck. I moved my head up and down. The bones of my neck made a cracking sound. I still kept looking into the fire, but I did not see anything unusual in it, nor did I hear any noises. After a while, I relaxed quite a bit, and it occurred to me that perhaps Don Juan was at the bottom of all this. I rapidly became convinced that it was so. The thought made me laugh. I had another avalanche of rational conclusions, happy conclusions this time. I thought that Don Juan must have suspected I was going to change my mind about staying in the mountains or he must have seen me running after him and taken cover in a concealed cave or behind a bush. Then he had followed me, and noticing I had fallen asleep, waked me up by cracking a branch near my ear. I added more twigs to the fire and began to look around in a casual and covert manner to see if I could spot him, even though I knew that if he was hiding around there I would not be able to discover him. Everything was quite placid. The crickets, the wind roughing the trees on the slopes of the hills surrounding me, the soft, cracking sound of the twigs catching on fire. Sparks flew around, but they were only ordinary sparks. Suddenly, I heard the loud noise of a branch snapping in two. The sound came from my left. I held my breath as I listened with utmost concentration. An instant later, I heard another branch snapping on my right. Then I heard the faint, faraway sound of snapping branches. It was as if someone was stepping on them and making them crack. The sounds were rich and full. They had a lusty quality. They also seemed to be getting closer to where I was. I had a very slow reaction and did not know whether to listen or stand up. I was deliberating what to do when all of a sudden the sound of snapping branches happened all around me. I was engulfed by them so fast that I barely had time to jump to my feet and stomp on the fire. I began to run downhill in the darkness. The thought crossed my mind as I moved through the shrubs that there was no flat land. I kept on trotting and trying to protect my eyes from the bushes. I was halfway down to the bottom of the hill when I felt something behind me almost touching me. It was not a branch. It was something I intuitively felt was overtaking me. This realization made me freeze. I took off my jacket, bundled it on my stomach, crouched over my legs and covered my eyes with my hands as Don Juan had prescribed. I kept that position for a short while and then I realized that everything around me was dead still. There were no sounds of any kind. I became extraordinarily alarmed. The muscles of my stomach contracted and shivered spasmodically. Then I heard another cracking sound. 
It seemed to have occurred far away, but it was extremely clear and distinct. It happened once more, closer to me. There was an interval of quietness, and then something exploded just above my head. The suddenness of the noise made me jump involuntarily, and I nearly rolled over on my side. It was definitely the sound of a branch being snapped in two. The sound had happened so close that I heard the rustling of the branch leaves as it was being cracked. Next, there was a downpour of crackling explosions. Branches were being snapped with great force all around me. The incongruous thing at that point was my reaction to the whole phenomenon. Instead of being terrified, I was laughing. I sincerely thought I had hit upon the cause of all that was happening. I was convinced that Don Juan was again tricking me. A series of logical conclusions cemented my confidence. I felt elated. I tried to imagine what I would do next if I were Don Juan. The sound of something slurping jolted me out of my mental exercise. I listened attentively. The sound happened again. I could not determine what it was. It sounded like an animal slurping water. It happened again, very close by. It was an almost sensual, exasperating sound of feet slushing in deep mud. Someone seemed to be walking, running, trotting on mud all around me. A logical doubt occurred to me. If Don Juan was doing all that, he had to be running in circles at an incredible speed. The rapidity of the sounds made that alternative impossible. I then thought that Don Juan must have confederates after all. The slushings actually vibrated. In fact, their peculiar vibrations seemed to be directed at my stomach, or perhaps I perceived their vibrations through the lower part of my abdomen. That realization brought an instantaneous loss of my sense of objectivity and aloofness. The sounds were attacking my stomach. The question occurred to me, what if it was not Don Juan? Apparently, the phenomenon I was experiencing was not a game, and the another one of Don Juan's tricks theory was only my rude explanation. I had cramps and an overwhelming desire to roll over and straighten my legs. I decided to move to my right in order to get my face off the place where I had gotten sick. The instant I began to crawl, I heard a very soft squeak right above my left ear. I froze on the spot. A flood of squeaks engulfed me at once. Then I heard something like the wings of a big bird sweeping over the tops of the bushes. The flapping wings of a flock of birds seemed to be pulling me up from above, while the squeaks of an army of rats seemed to be pushing me from underneath and from around my body. There was no doubt in my mind that through my blundering stupidity I had unleashed something terrible on myself. I clenched my teeth and took deep breaths and sang peyote songs. The noises lasted a very long time, and I opposed them with all my might. When they subsided, there was again an interrupted silence, as I am accustomed to perceiving silence. That is, I could detect only the natural sounds of the insects and the wind. The time of silence was for me more deleterious than the time of noises. I began to think and to assess my position, and my deliberation threw me into a panic. I knew that I was lost. I did not have the knowledge nor the stamina to fend off whatever was accosting me. I was utterly helpless, crouched over my own vomit. I thought that the end of my life had come, and I began to weep. I wanted to think about my life, but I did not know where to start. Nothing of what I had done in my life was really worthy of that last, ultimate emphasis, so I had nothing to think about. That was an exquisite realization. I had changed since the last time I experienced a similar fright. This time I was more empty. I had less personal feelings to carry along. I asked myself what a warrior would do in that situation, and I arrived at various conclusions. There was something about my umbilical region that was uniquely important. There was something unearthly about the sounds. They were aiming at my stomach, and the idea that Don Juan was tricking me was utterly untenable. 
The muscles of my stomach were very tight, although I did not have cramps any longer. I kept on singing and breathing deeply, and I felt a soothing warmth inundating my entire body. It had become clear to me that if I was going to survive, I had to proceed in terms of Don Juan's teachings. I repeated his instructions in my mind. I remembered the exact point where the sun had disappeared over the mountains in relation to the hill where I was and to the place where I had crouched. I reoriented myself, and when I was convinced that my assessment of the cardinal points was correct, I began to change my position so I would have my head pointing in a new and better direction, the southeast. I slowly started moving my feet toward my left, inch by inch, until I had them twisted under my calves. Then I began to align my body with my feet, but no sooner had I begun to creep laterally than I felt a peculiar tap. I had the actual physical sensation of something touching the uncovered area of the back of my neck. It happened so fast that I yelled involuntarily and froze again. I tightened my abdominal muscles and began to breathe deeply and sing my peyote songs. A second later, I felt once more the same light tap on my neck. I cringed. My neck was uncovered and there was nothing I could do to protect myself. I was tapped again. It was a very soft, almost silky object that touched my neck like the furry paw of a giant rabbit. It touched me again, and then it began to cross my neck back and forth until I was in tears. It was not a painful sensation at all, and yet it was maddening. I knew that if I did not involve myself in doing something, I would go mad and stand up and run. So I slowly began again to maneuver my body into a new position. My attempt at moving seemed to increase the tapping on my neck. It finally got to such a frenzy that I jerked my body and at once aligned it in the new direction. I had no idea whatsoever about the outcome of my act. I was just taking action to keep from going stark, raving mad. As soon as I changed directions, the tapping on my neck ceased. After a long, anguished pause, I heard a distant snapping of branches. The noises were not close anymore. The rustling sound and the cracking of branches gave me the feeling that the whole hill was on fire. My body was as tight as a rock. I was perspiring copiously. I began to feel warmer and warmer. For a moment I was utterly convinced that the hill was burning. I did not jump up and run because I was so numb I was paralyzed. In fact, I could not even open my eyes. All that mattered to me at that point was to get up and escape the fire. I had terrible cramps in my stomach which started to cut my intake of air. I became very involved in trying to breathe. After a long struggle, I was capable of taking deep breaths again and I was also capable of noticing that the rustling had subsided. There was only an occasional cracking sound. The snapping sound of branches became more and more distant and sporadic until it ceased altogether. I was able to open my eyes. I looked through my half-closed lids to the ground underneath me. It was already daylight. I waited a while longer without moving, and then I started to stretch my body. I rolled on my back. The sun was over the hills in the east. It took me hours to straighten out my legs and drag myself downhill. I began to walk toward the place where Don Juan had left me, which was perhaps only a mile. I thought of mountain lions and tried to climb up a tree, but my arms could not support my weight. I leaned against a rock and resigned myself to die there. I was convinced that I would be food for mountain lions or other predators. I woke up when something shook me. Don Juan was leaning over me. He said he was taking me to a large stream and was going to wash me there. On the way, he plugged my ears with some leaves he had in his pouch, and then he blindfolded me putting one leaf on each eye and securing them both with a piece of cloth. Don Juan rubbed my entire body with leaves and then dumped me in a river. I felt it was a large river. It was deep. I was standing and I could not touch the bottom. Don Juan was holding me by the right elbow. 
On the way to my car, I stayed very close to Don Juan. I stumbled scores of times, and he laughed. I noticed that his laughter was especially invigorating, and it became the focal point of my replenishing. The more he laughed, the better I felt. The next day, I narrated to Don Juan the sequence of events from the time he left me. He laughed all the way through my account, especially when I told him that I had thought it was one of his tricks. You always think you're being tricked, he said. You trust yourself too much. You act like you know all the answers. You know nothing, my little friend. Nothing. Now you must go home. Don't return until you're healed and your gap is closed. I did not return to Mexico for months. I made the last entry in my field notes on October 16, 1970. As I approached Don Juan's house, I saw him sitting in his usual place under his ramada in front of the door. I parked in the shade of a tree, took my briefcase and a bag of groceries out of the car, and walked toward him, greeting him in a loud voice. I then noticed that he was not alone. There was another man sitting behind a high pile of firewood. Both of them were looking at me. Don Juan waved, and so did the other man. Judging from his attire, he was not an Indian, but a Mexican from the Southwest. He was wearing Levi's, a beige shirt, a Texan cowboy hat, and cowboy boots. I talked to Don Juan, and then looked at the man. He was smiling at me. I stared at him for a moment. Here's little Carlos, the man said to Don Juan. And he doesn't speak to me anymore. Don't tell me that he's cross with me. Before I could say anything, they both broke up laughing, and only then did I realize that the strange man was Don Gennaro. You didn't recognize me, did you? He asked, still laughing. I had to admit that his attire had baffled me. Don Juan explained to him that I had been away for months because of an unfortunate incident with one of the Allies. So you finally encountered an ally, Don Gennaro said. I think I did, I said cautiously. They laughed loudly. Don Gennaro patted me on the back two or three times. It was a very light tapping which I interpreted as a friendly gesture of concern. He rested his hand on my shoulder as he looked at me and I had a feeling of placid contentment which lasted only an instant. For next, Don Gennaro did something inexplicable to me. I suddenly felt that he had put the weight of a boulder on my back. I had the sensation that he had increased the weight of his hand, which was resting on my right shoulder, until it made me sag all the way down and I hit my head on the ground. We must help little Carlos, Don Gennaro said, and gave a conspiratorial look to Don Juan. I sat up straight again and turned to Don Juan. I don't know anything about it, Don Juan said in a comically factual tone. He didn't put his hand on my shoulder. With that, both of them broke up laughing. What did you do to me, Don Gennaro, I asked. I just put my hand on your shoulder, he said innocently. Bunginato got up, cracked his bones, stretching his arms, and opened his eyes until they were round and looked crazy. Gennaro is going to make the desert tremble, he said, and went into the chaparral. Gennaro is determined to help you, Don Juan said in a confidential tone. He did the same thing to you at his house, and you almost saw. I thought he was referring to what had happened at the waterfall, but he was talking about some unearthly rumbling sounds I had heard at Don Gennaro's house. That was Gennaro's art, he said. Only Gennaro can do that. You almost saw then. I told him that it had never occurred to me to associate seeing with the strange noises I had heard at that time. And why not, he asked flatly. Well, seeing means the eyes to me, I said. He scrutinized me for a moment as if there was something wrong with me. I never said that seeing is a matter of the eyes alone, he said, and shook his head in disbelief. Well, how does he do it, I insisted. He has already told you how he does it, Don Juan said sharply. At that very moment, I heard an extraordinary rumble. I jumped up and Don Juan began to laugh. The rumble was like a thunderous avalanche. 
Listening to it, I had the funny realization that my inventory of experiences in sound comes definitely from the movies. Don Juan held his sides as if they hurt from laughing. A thunderous rumble shook the ground where I stood. I distinctly heard the thump of what seemed to be a monumental boulder that was rolling on its sides. I heard a series of crushing thumps that gave me the impression that the boulder was rolling inexorably toward me. I experienced a moment of supreme confusion. My muscles were tense. My whole body was ready for fleeing. I looked at Don Juan. He was staring at me. I then heard the most frightening thump I had ever heard in my life. It was as if a monumental boulder had landed right behind the house. Everything shook, and at that moment I had a most peculiar perception. For an instant I actually saw a boulder the size of a mountain right behind the house. It was not as if an image had been superimposed on the scenery of the house I was looking at. It was not the view of a real boulder either. It was rather as if the noise was creating the image of a boulder rolling on its monumental sides. I was actually seeing the noise. The inexplicable character of my perception threw me into the depths of despair and confusion. Never in my life would I have conceived that my senses were capable of perceiving in such a manner. I had an attack of rational fright and decided to flee for my life. Don Juan held me by the arm and ordered me imperatively not to run away and not to turn around either, but face the direction in which Don Gennaro had gone. I heard next a series of booming noises which resembled the sound of rocks falling and piling on top of each other, and then everything was quiet again. A few minutes later, Don Gennaro came back and sat down. He asked me if I had seen. I did not know what to say. I turned to Don Juan for a cue. He was staring at me. I think he did, he said and chuckled. I wanted to say that I did not know what they were talking about. I felt utterly frustrated. I had a physical sensation of wrath, of utter discomfort. I think we should leave him here to sit alone, Don Juan said. They got up and walked by me. Carlos is indulging in his confusion, Don Juan said very loudly. October 18, 1970. I think I understand what Don Gennaro was trying to do, I said to Don Juan. I said that in order to draw him out. His continual refusal to talk was unnerving to me. Don Juan smiled and shook his head slowly as if agreeing with what I had said. I would have taken his gesture as an affirmation except for the strange glint in his eyes. It was as if his eyes were laughing at me. You don't think I understand, do you? I asked compulsively. I suppose you do. You do, in fact. However, understanding is not the real point. Your mind is set to seek only one side of this, he said. He took a dry twig and moved it in the air. He was not drawing in the air or making a figure. What he did resembled the movements he makes with his fingers when he cleans the debris from a pile of seeds. His movements were like a soft prodding or scratching the air with the twig. He turned and looked at me, and I shrugged my shoulders automatically in a gesture of bafflement. He drew closer and repeated his movements, making eight points on the ground. He circled the first point. You are here, he said. We are all here. This is feeling, and we move from here to here. He circled the second, which he had drawn right above number one. He then moved his twig back and forth between the two points to portray a heavy traffic. There are, however, six more points a man is capable of handling, he said. Most men know nothing about them. He placed his twig between points one and two and pecked on the ground with it. To move between these two points, you call understanding. You've been doing that all your life. If you say you understand my knowledge, you have done nothing new. He then joined some of the eight points to the others with lines. The result was a long trapezoid figure that had eight centers of uneven radiation. Each of these six remaining points is a world, 
Just like feeling and understanding are two worlds for you, he said. Why eight points? Why not an infinite number as in a circle, I asked. I drew a circle on the ground. Don Juan smiled. As far as I know, there are only eight points a man is capable of handling. Perhaps men cannot go beyond that. And I said handling, not understanding. Did you get that? His tone was so funny I laughed. He was imitating or rather mocking my insistence on the exact usage of words. Your problem is that you want to understand everything, and that is not possible. If you insist on understanding, you're not considering your entire lot as a human being. Your stumbling block is intact. Therefore, you have done almost nothing in all these years. You have been shaken out of your total slumber, true, but that could have been accomplished anyway by other circumstances. After a pause, Don Juan told me to get up because we were going to the water canyon. As we were getting into my car, Don Gennaro came out from behind the house and joined us. I drove part of the way, and then we walked into a deep ravine. Don Juan picked a place to rest in the shade of a large tree. You mentioned once, Don Juan began, that a friend of yours had said when the two of you saw a leaf falling from the very top of a sycamore, that the same leaf will not fall again from that same sycamore ever in a whole eternity, remember? I remembered having told him about that incident. We are at the foot of a large tree, he continued. And now if we look at that other tree in front of us, we may see a leaf falling from the very top. He signaled me to look. There was a large tree on the other side of the gully. Its leaves were yellowish and dry. He urged me with a movement of his head to keep on looking at the tree. After a few minutes' wait, a leaf cracked loose from the top and began falling to the ground. It hit other leaves and branches three times before it landed in the tall underbrush. Did you see it? Yes. You would say that the same leaf will never again fall from that same tree, true? True. To the best of your understanding, that is true. That is only to the best of your understanding. Look again. I automatically looked and saw a leaf falling. It actually hit the same leaves and branches as the previous one. It was as if I were looking at an instant television replay. I followed the wavy falling of the leaf until it landed on the ground. I stood up to find out if there were two leaves, but the tall underbrush around the tree prevented me from seeing where the leaf had actually landed. Don Juan laughed and told me to sit down. Look, he said, pointing with his head to the top of the tree. There goes the same leaf again. I once more saw a leaf falling in exactly the same pattern as the previous two. When it landed, I knew Don Juan was about to signal me again to look at the top of the tree, but before he did, I looked up. The leaf was again falling. I don't understand how you're making me see a repetition of what I had seen before. What did you do to me, Don Juan? You're chained, Don Juan explained. You're chained to your reason. There's nothing to understand. Understanding is only a very small affair. So very small, he said. At that point, Don Gennaro stood up. He gave a quick glance to Don Juan. Their eyes met, and Don Juan looked at the ground in front of him. Don Gennaro stood in front of me and began swinging his arms at his side, back and forth in unison. Look, little Carlos, he said. Look, look. He made an extraordinarily sharp, swishing sound. It was the sound of something ripping. At the precise instant the sound happened, I felt a sensation of vacuity in my lower abdomen. It was the terribly anguishing sensation of falling, not painful, but rather unpleasant and consuming. It lasted a few seconds, and then it subsided, leaving a strange itch in my knees, but while the sensation had lasted, I experienced another unbelievable phenomenon. I saw Don Gennaro on top of some mountains that were perhaps ten miles away. The perception lasted only a few seconds, and it happened so unexpectedly that I did not have time really to examine it. 
I cannot recall whether I saw a man-sized figure standing on top of the mountains or a reduced image of Don Gennaro. I cannot even recall whether or not it was Don Gennaro. Yet at that moment I was certain beyond any doubt that I was seeing him standing on top of the mountains. However, the moment I thought that I could not possibly see a man ten miles away, the perception vanished. I turned around to look for Don Gennaro, but he was not there. The bafflement I experienced was as unique as everything else was happening to me. My mind buckled under the strain. I felt utterly disoriented. Don Juan stood up and made me cover the lower part of my abdomen with my hands and press my legs tightly against my body in a squat position. We sat in silence for a while, and then he said that he was truly going to refrain from explaining anything to me, because only by acting can one become a sorcerer. He recommended that I leave immediately, otherwise Don Gennaro would probably kill me in his effort to help me. You are going to change directions, he said, and you'll break your chains. He said that there was nothing to understand about his or about Don Gennaro's actions, and that sorcerers were quite capable of performing extraordinary feats. Gennaro and I are acting from here, he said, and pointed to one of the centers of radiation in his diagram. And it is not the center of understanding, yet you know what it is. I wanted to say that I did not really know what he was talking about, but he did not give me time and stood up and signaled me to follow him. When we were getting inside the car, I looked around for Don Gennaro. Where is he? I asked. You know where he is, Don Juan snapped at me. Before I left, I sat down with him as I always do. I had an overwhelming urge to ask for explanations. As Don Juan says, explanations are truly my indulgence. Where's Don Gennaro? I asked cautiously. You know where, he said. No, I protested. No, I didn't know that. I was truthful at that. My mind refused to intake that sort of stimuli as being real, and yet after ten years of apprenticeship with Don Juan, my mind could no longer uphold my old, ordinary criteria of what is real. However, all the speculations I had thus far engendered about the nature of reality had been mere intellectual manipulations. The proof was that under the pressure of Don Juan and Don Gennaro's acts, my mind had entered into an impasse. Don Juan looked at me, and there was such sadness in his eyes that I began to weep. Tears fell freely. For the first time in my life I felt the encumbering weight of my reason. An indescribable anguish overtook me. I wailed involuntarily and embraced him. He gave me a quick blow with his knuckles on the top of my head. I felt it like a ripple down my spine. It had a sobering effect. You indulge too much, he said softly. Don Juan slowly walked around me. He seemed to be deliberating whether or not to say something to me. Twice he stopped and seemed to change his mind. Whether or not you return is thoroughly unimportant, he finally said. However, you now have the need to live like a warrior. You have always known that. Now you're simply in the position of having to make use of something you disregarded before. But you had to struggle for this knowledge. It wasn't just given to you. It wasn't just handed down to you. You had to beat it out of yourself. Yet you're still a luminous being. You're still going to die like everyone else. I once told you that there's nothing to change in a luminous being. He was quiet for a moment. I knew he was looking at me, but I avoided his eyes. Nothing has really changed in you, he said. 